This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. Top of the morning to you, friends. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program where we uh, we will be your handbook to humanity. Three full hours of information, the latest, the greatest research, everything you need to know to live a healthier, happier life. Hopefully, even help you live longer. Love stronger, lead the ones you're with. Welcome to the program. We got a great show for you. Today, we, we are going to be talking politics, of course, following up on the uh, last night's um, primaries in Kentucky and Oregon. Interesting, uh, almost tie in Kentucky. It's it's uh, the Democratic games. It's becoming pretty intense. So we'll talk about that in just a few moments. Also, um, we've got to talk about the soaring suicide rates. I don't know if you know this. Thirty year high, the most, uh, the highest the suicide rate has been in the country in the last thirty years this year according to um, a study released by the CDC. And we will be talking with an expert about what it all means. Apparently, middle-aged whites uh, account now for a third of the suicides, and their numbers are soaring. So we've got to figure this out, folks. We'll talk about that. Also, uh, just bringing some of the fun latest headlines as well. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on. But first, of course, let's get to the headlines with Caitlin Thomas. Caitlin, what's going on around the country, my friend? Um, yeah, like you said, so results were posted for yesterday's primaries in both Oregon and Kentucky. Bernie Sanders took Oregon, while Hillary, Hillary Clinton took Kentucky. This is the big win for Clinton, who hasn't won a primary vote in quite a while, but she still holds the lead against Sanders for the overall Democratic vote. Presumptive Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump now finds himself just three percentage points behind Hillary Clinton, according to a new national poll released um, Tuesday. The NBC News poll of more than 14,000 adults gave Clinton 48% to Trump's 45%. Among minorities, though, Clinton has a whopping 75% point lead over Trump. The billionaire businessman, however, tops the former Secretary of State among men and whites. While Clinton still edges her Democratic rival Bernie Sanders nationally, 54% to Sanders 40%, the Vermont senator defeats Trump by a greater margin in a hypothetical matchup of 53% to 41%. The Senate unanimously approved legislation Tuesday that would allow survivors and families of the 9-11 attacks to sue Saudi Arabia for its alleged involvement in the terrorist strikes by blocking the country's sovereign immunity in federal court. The passage of the measure, known as the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act, sets up a big showdown between Congress and the White House, as the White House has opposed the legislation. Saudi Arabian officials have already threatened to sell $750 billion in U.S. assets if the bill is signed into law, and President Obama has expressed concerns that the bill could also open up the U.S. to lawsuits. A new study found that 45% of heart attacks in the United States are, quote, silent, with the people having them not experiencing typical symptoms like arm or chest pain. The damage is the same, researchers from Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center told NBC News that, quote, because patients don't know they have had a silent heart attack, they may not receive the treatment they need to prevent another one. Silent heart attacks need to have aggressive treatment, and people who have them are three times as likely to die of heart disease. And finally, Matt, police say a man is in custody after driving his truck onto the National Mall, claiming he had been exposed to anthrax at a farm in Virginia. 
Whoa. I know. The suspect said he brought some of the substance with him to be checked out. Police said they swabbed the man for anthrax and the test came back negative. He was taken away to be decontaminated. Park Police spokeswoman said in a news release that the police officers who were in contact with him went through decontamination as well. So just precautionary measures. Yeah. The man called U.S. Capitol Police to warn of the alleged exposure and said he had had some of the substance in his truck. The man drove onto the mall in front of the Capitol near the reflecting pool. Really got some mm. attention. Authorities closed several streets in the area and emergency responders were told to suit up, but firefighters quickly determined there was no hazardous material. Why would you drive to the U.S. Capitol if you've got anthrax? In the truck. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't know why you would drive onto I, the I Capitol Mall in the first place, but... I don't think he was... Somebody was... He was either really scared or he was had been exposed to something... This happened yesterday? Anthrax. Ben, where yeah. were you yesterday? I don't want to tell you. Okay. Wow. But I got a really good shower. What's that white powder <laughs> all over? <laughs> yeah, what's that? Oh, that's too bad for that guy. That's baby powder, by the way. Good stuff. You still using baby powder? It's, He's got to freshen up yeah, somehow. I you know. just told me he doesn't like showering. No, I know. Tell me. I'm in an <laughs> enclosed room that's sealed, <laughs> soundproof. But, uh, oh, see, Ben was saying earlier that nobody could tell if he smells, but I guess that's not true. No, you not can. at all. Oh, yeah. He also tries to cover it up with curry. Ew. Yeah. No, yeah. I just happen to eat curry every day. Oh, is that well, right? I mean, at least it's not anthrax. It could be worse. It could, it could be, be worse. anthrax. <laughs> yeah, anthrax laced curry. Uh, thanks, Caitlin. On your bus. You got it. You killed it. Okay. Check in um, later. Check you later. Next hour, uh, every hour on the hour. Little news headlines for you there. But we've got to get um, to some of the other uh, headlines as well. I mean, think about it, folks. Does Bernie not get that he's done? I don't think he understands that he's no longer considered a candidate by the Clintons. He's officially terminated, except, of course, last night he won Oregon and almost took Kentucky. But uh, Hillary was able to hold on to that one. By a half a percentage point, 46.8% of the vote went to Hillary, 463 went to Bernard Sanders. But interestingly, they split the delegates 27-27. The way the Democrats do their delegate count is strange. It seems like it should be more of a winner-take-all. It almost seems like it's not democratic. Great insight. Great insight, Ben. It's true. It seems more like a socialist democratic process. It's true. For Bernie Sanders. So Sanders should be happy. Uh, Donald Trump, by the way, killed it in Oregon. It's almost like he's running uncontested. 67% of the vote. And again, he will grab 17 delegates there. So the the, the whole thing continues. The primaries continue. And um, Oregon, uh, again, Bernie Sanders won 54.5% of the vote. Hillary Clinton, 45.5% of the vote. He won by about nine points, and yet they only have a four-point difference in delegate count. Bernard will get 28 of the delegates in uh, Oregon, and Secretary Clinton, 24% or 24 delegates. So, oh, it's crazy. And then meanwhile, wars go on in, uh, in Las Vegas and, and in um, Nevada over the Nevada count. Bernie's people are getting mad. And, and Deborah Wasserman Schultz is their target. Yeah, she's not happy about that. I'm sure. She's, uh, 
She's saying the Bernie Bernie Sanders kind of provoking this type of response and encouraging these the people right. to uh, kind of revolt a little bit yeah. is not helpful. Well, but it's it's probably I I don't know I don't see that. Do you see Bernie provoking? Well, he's not stopping it. Well, right, but and 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 if in, in her mind, if he's not stopping it, he's provoking it. Yeah. Well, it could be the fact that. Bernie thinks that this whole thing is set up to just keep promoting the establishment. Well, yeah, he said that from the beginning. Yeah. And and she's the establishment. There's plenty of evidence to show that they've set it up that way. Look at the debates. Right. There's been like, what, three? You mean the Saturday the Saturday afternoon get-togethers? Yeah. That the, nobody watched? The worst time that no one watches TV, no exposure, yeah. let's minimize our, uh, right. our risk here. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and the fact that a lot of the money that's being raised supposedly for the DNC is really going to Hillary Clinton. Yeah, it's it's a it's a joint fundraising agreement. Yeah, it's a joint fundraising. But all the money goes to her. Yeah. And people are mad that Bernie's not going to go raise money for the Democrats when it's just going to go right to Hillary. Why would you do that? Yeah. Wouldn't do that. He's not a team player. <laughs> you know, I think they just need to be careful with the guy. Trump he, Trump just signed a similar agreement with the uh, the RNC. Did he? With the Republicans. Yeah, I just read that this morning. That he that the money would go to him? Yeah, yeah. Finally. I'm not, you know, whatever well, the, whatever accounting you want to call it, he's going to raise money for the yeah. for the committee. Yeah. For and the Republic, for yeah. other Republicans. Right. But it'll go back to him because he needs the money desperately right now. Yeah, apparently I there I have a story here where there's no way in the world he could have funded this himself. Yeah. It's just too much money. This is a big deal. Even but, though even though yesterday he said he's worth 10 billion dollars. Right. Oh yeah. He for, he he turned in his forms. Biggest, biggest report ever now, to I don't the know financial he, was he, reporting. Was he reply, what was he referring to? Like the stack of papers or was he referring to the most money ever yes. claimed to have been earned by a candidate ever? <laughs> he told you the, the, the amount of uh, the sheets of paper in the report that he submitted. <laughs> huge. And, and also he's the richest man ever to run for president. He's also said that his name is worth $4 billion. Could be. So, well, sure. Yeah. Have you ever tried a Trump steak? Try it, then you'll know. Totally worth it. Uh, he also made what five hundred and like fifty million dollars last year, or whatever. Yes, yeah. huge. He had a good year. He had a good year. I mean, Hillary only had like six million, six and a half million. <laughs> Slacker. This is what's crazy. Um, I think Donald. He just needs to calm his you know rhetoric down and just start pounding away because. He he's, he could just start playing. Look, I'm a businessman. Mm-hmm. I know how to do this. Nobody on earth needs to spend what our government spends to make what happens in our government happen. We don't have to do that. Let me show you how to do it. If I can make a quarter or a half a billion dollars, so can you. That's just all he's got to say. And then everyone will sign up because everyone wants to make a half a bill. Granted, you're going to have an individual showing up to uh... – a Congress and a Senate that are – or a Congress that's the same Congress that's been there that yeah. hasn't wanted to work with anybody. Right. But see, that will have to be different, right? Because – No, not if really. It, if it can stay, <laughs> then – and Donald stays. Wow, imagine all the goodness that will flow. Hmm. I mean, it's possible. Anything's possible. It's – Quite literally, anything is anything, possible. Anything's possible. There was a record that was broken last night. What? A strange political footnote this election year. Hillary Clinton defeated Bernie Sanders Tuesday night in Clinton County, Kentucky. 
This tidbit is making headlines because prior to Tuesday, Sanders had been eight for eight in previous Clinton County races in other states. For the record, uh, this is from CNN. They were in Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, (laughs) Michigan, Missouri, Ohio, New York, and Pennsylvania, all counties named Clinton in those states. He was killing it. And she lost every one. Except that one. Except last night in Kentucky. Oh, man. So as this says from uh, Mother Jones, her long national nightmare is over. (laughs) With all the Clinton County races in the books, all eyes now turn to the race in Sanders County, Montana on June 7th. (laughs) Oh, yeah, baby. It's going to get ugly. That is, uh, they always have the weirdest little things like that. But if you can't carry your own namesake in every state... (laughs) What is your deal? Loser! Um, what else is going on in uh, the headlines, Ter- Terry, that we have to worry about? Because we're about to get into the suicide rates, and that's... You want something light? I want light, because that, that's going to be heavy. How about uh, we, there's more cheese in the United States than ever before? I said light. <gasps> cheese. It's kind of heavy, but it's, it's cheese. It's way heavy. So it says, thanks to a confluence of ramped up dairy production, the strong Mm. U.S. dollar, and decreasing global demand. Ooh, a confluence. America is experiencing a glut of cheese so big, it works out to three extra pounds for each person in the United States. Talk about confluence. Right. Wait till that's... This all out of the Wall Street Journal. confluence between your bowel, the cheese... (laughs) There's actually an excess supply in many of many agricultural commodities, including beef, poultry, pork, mm. corn, and wheat. But at the moment, the amount of cheese being warehoused in cold storage to wait out a tidal wave of dairy is at a record high. Yes. The cheese glut started with dairy farmers who expanded production when prices for milk and cheese were high a few years ago. This is good news for the cold storage industry and for cheese lovers. Retail cheese prices have already dropped 4.3% from a year ago. Excellent. <laughs> Some cheese. Oh, this is great. Lots of cheese out there. I love cheese. Cheese is probably my favorite food. My wife, not convinced of this story. She's been, you know, if you go to the store, cheese yeah. is still, still kind of expensive when you need oh, a, is it? a big chunk of it. Yeah, we need to get, we need to like get more cheese out on the market so that the market prices drop. And one more? Yes. Do you want a Tetris movie? No. They There's one in the works. Hold on. Why? It could be a blockbuster, at least that's what the Chinese-American movie studio hopes to produce in a sci-fi thriller based on the popular 80s video game Tetris. The Mm -hmm. $80 million project is the first from newly formed Threshold Global Studios, a joint venture between Chinese entertainment investor Bruno Wu, Seven Star Works, and producer Larry Kasanoff's California-based Threshold Entertainment Group, you needed all that, which produced live-action movies, according to the AP. The joint venture will make cross-cultural movies for the global market, a statement released Tuesday from the studio. There, uh, there's been uh, they've made two Mortal Kombat movies, yeah, and those people just flock to like crazy. Um, so, so they're it sounds like they're going after like the seventy-year-old market. They're going after a market where they can throw Tetris up and people go, eh, I'm bored. Let's go watch no, it. Right. <laughs> that is my mom's favorite game. No word on actors, no word on plot, no word on anything other than Tetris. Wow. Do they – there's no words, so we don't know what No idea. Do. They're just going to make a movie about Tetris. Well, let's just make it up. So what it is – You watched the movie about Battleship, right? 
I couldn't get it downloaded because it. Don't was, worry, it's, it's not horrible. Free. Don't oh, watch it. Oh, it is, but yeah. I want to watch it. It's okay. I mean, does the captain say you sunk no, my battleship? They never say that in the entire movie, and you're waiting. You're like, that's the whole point. They never do, but it turns into like you know the Navy fighting aliens, which is totally what that game's about. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But that, but it looks incredible. Quite honestly, well, yeah. If looks are all you're, you're there for, battleships your movie. By the way, I'm going to play a song. Uh, I'm gonna have to have I'm gonna have to have Ben look it up. But I I just downloaded a new song that is an old song with a new twist, and I have a feeling I don't know that you might know where it was played, and it's part of the nerd alert. That's a tease. Teasing it. I'll do that at the end, the bottom of this hour, folks. Um, but first, let's let's take on this uh, surging suicide rate in the United States. It's the highest it's ever been in three decades. Folks, something's not right here, Uh, especially among middle-aged white people. They now account for a third of all U.S. suicides. What's the cause? What's going on? Trying to understand the the crazy, crazy uh, spike in suicide rates. Coming up in just a minute, we'll be uh, bringing on Dr. Kathy Hempstead to walk us through some of the research and find out what she thinks is going on. Doing what we can, folks, to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. You know, we are seeing the highest rate of suicide since 1986, according to the National Center for Health Statistics. The overall suicide rate rose by 24% from 1999 to 2014, and uh, that's uh, about 13 suicides per 100,000 people. It's especially afflicting the middle-aged group, uh, especially middle-aged women, 45 to 54 years of age, with the rate rising by 63% since 1999 and 43% for men. Um, And we wanted to talk about why, what's going on, what is happening with uh, the suicide rate. Joining us today is Dr. Kathy Hempstead, Senior Advisor for Healthcare at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And she joins us now from New Jersey to walk us through these shocking statistics, help us figure out what we can do and what's really going on. Uh, Dr. Hempstead, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for being here. Talk to us about these numbers. I mean, uh, so middle, uh, middle-aged middle white men and women, their suicide rates are going up. And, and really, maybe the most shocking, the rate has tripled for girls ages 10 to 14. What is going on? Well, I think we, we saw some news released recently that was, you know, really kind of sobering on a variety of fronts because we saw for pretty much every single age group and for both males and females except for the very oldest groups, those 75 years and older, we saw increases and often quite large increases in suicide rates. And as you said, there was a large increase for very young girls aged 10 to 14, but there were also significant increases for adolescent girls. And as you say, the biggest increase for women was the um, 45 to 54-year-old group, which has traditionally been the group with the highest suicide rate for women. Hmm. And for males, 
you know, also you saw for every age group except the oldest, you know, you also saw large increases in suicide rates, although I think the overall some of the increases were really more surprising for women. And we saw a bit of the closing of the gender gap in suicide, which is still significant, but we saw, you know, females getting a little bit closer to the male rates. Ugh, that may not be... That's not success, is it? No, um, that's not sad. the gender equality that we're right. looking for. <laughs> yeah, right. We want gender equality everywhere. What about what is the, what is behind it all? Um, is it economics? What what is going on? Well, there's you know there's no one thing that's going on, of course. But um, I would say a couple things. First of all, the this is a pretty long time period, and over this time period, there's just been a slow, steady, you know, tick, 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 up a couple percentage points every year. So it wasn't like a, you know, a one-year turn-on-a-dime mm. shock, you know, So, but it's been slow and steady. So it's, you know, it's certainly not a data artifact or a random fluctuation. I mean, it's it's a true increase, but it's been kind of slow and steady. And I would say, I would say a couple things. I mean, suicide in general is a complex behavior. There's yeah. usually some kind of mental health or behavioral health issue at the root, and then there's sort of interactions between that and various kinds of life events that, you know, would affect someone who's who's vulnerable in, in a different way than, than it might affect somebody else. And there are just things that happen to people at different, you know, stages of their lives, and, and that's something that's sort of always true. I think a couple things that have been unique in recent years is, as you mentioned, we had a pretty profound recession in the middle of this period. And there's lots of evidence from other studies and some studies done here that show that, you know, pretty, you know, major kinds of economic distress can can be a risk factor for suicide for some people. And so that could explain some of the increase that we saw. And then another thing that I don't think we should discount has been this really profound increase in substance abuse that we've seen during the same period with the, you know, proliferation of the opioids and the spread to heroin. And, and substance abuse is a risk factor for suicide. So I think, you know, if I if I had to guess, I would I would say yeah. that that may be a factor as well. Wow, interesting. So and then um, with the recession comes all the financial stresses, the, you know, bankruptcies, the, the inability to keep up, maybe job loss and 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 then then that might i guess prompt other mental health issues depression yeah i mean it's it's you know rarely is is that the only thing mm-hmm. i mean but i think i think that's right and we've seen from other studies of you know historical times studies of the great depression studies from economic crises in other countries at other times that we do see increases in suicide rates when there's sort of a um you know what we might call like an exogenous shock you know sort of an external event that affects a lot of people in the population and of course the vast majority of them won't commit suicide but for a group of people who already had some vulnerabilities um, you know, this could be sort of a precipitating event. Hmm. And so I think that that's, that's part of it. And it does make sense that that would fall particularly on the middle class because that's the part of the population that's sort of the most vulnerable to economic distress because they probably are more likely to have dependents and need sure. to save for their retirement, you know, kind of are, are just the more exposed to, to that kind of duress. What do you sense? Uh, is there a difference between male and female in that? Is that... Is there more stress in the kind of the middle-aged um, women that, that might be driving them up as well? Is it same, same factors, I guess? 
I mean, I, I would think that middle-aged females, just like middle-aged males, would be the age group that would be most vulnerable to sort of recession-related economic factors, things like foreclosures, things like bankruptcies, maybe losing your home, maybe feeling like it can't provide for your children. I think that they would be, uh, you know, have the biggest impact on, on females in that group. And that is where we saw the largest increase for females is, is in the middle-aged group. I mean, I think traditionally there's more pressure on males than females to be providers. But in terms of the age group that would be affected, I would think it would be quite similar for males and females. When you look at just um, kind of, I guess, the data, is, does education play into this at all? I mean, oh, yeah. uh, does it talk about that? I'm glad you asked that. I mean, that's something that, that wasn't in the report, but that is something that, um, you know, uh, I am starting to look at actually right now for a, for a project I'm working on. And I think, um, you know, we see a pretty large gradient in suicide rates by education with, the, you know, the, those with less education having higher suicide rates than lo- those with more education. And we certainly saw the rates increase for for all groups over this time period, but we saw the, the gap widen a bit. Hmm. And I think that sort of fits into a lot of um, information that we've been hearing lately about a sort of a, a widening gradient in mortality by socioeconomic status and education. And there have been, a, you know, a number of studies that have shown, you know, the, the very well-known study by Case and Deaton came out, I guess, about six months ago or so that that showed this, you know, reduction in life expectancy for lower um, socioeconomic status white women in particular, and then there were some other studies that also showed this sort of increasing difference in life expectancy by, uh, by socioeconomic status, which education is, is sort of a proxy for that. So I think that, um, you know, this, this may be part of it. And I think it wouldn't be surprising if we did see substance abuse playing a role in, you know, the, the rising rates among the less educated, because certainly some of the other research lately about differential mortality by by socioeconomic status is pointed to the role of overdose and you know secondary complications of substance abuse as driving a lot of the differential mm, man it really in fact yesterday i had the privilege to address about 400 mental health workers hmm. and um their jobs are there are stressed to the edge because <laughs> wow. they're 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 dealing with uh, lower economic uh populations um with but highly supported by you know healthcare uh, laws, Medicare I think it was, and or Medicaid I think. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, I, I want to do this. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Kathy Hempstead. And Kathy, when we come back, I'd love to talk about. We have more and more access, it seems like, or more people do, to healthcare. Um, are we are we not addressing maybe the the healthcare side of this as well? And and how can we create a, a healthier uh, more, you know, I guess a stronger mental health community. Um, we're talking about uh, these suicide rates, and it's spiking, folks. It's impacting us in a major way. Um, we need to understand as much as we can. Stick with us. We'll come back, continue the discussion with Dr. Kathy Hempstead. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Townsend Show. We're talking about the surging suicide rates uh, here in the United States. We're at an all-time high. 
of suicides um, in the last three decades. And uh, not good news, folks. We, and you know, there's a lot of reasons, right? A lot of things have kind of combined to create uh, some of this chaos. Some things might be just simply the history of the last 10 years or so of economic uh, collapse and decline. Uh, drug use, opiate drug use especially, has been on the increase as well. So this is causing a lot of, um, of different problems. And on the phone with us is Dr. Kathy Hempstead. And uh, Kathy is basically, uh, she's a senior advisor for healthcare at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and directs the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's work on health insurance coverage. She's a, uh, a researcher as well and is here to kind of help us make sense of these numbers. Dr. Kathy Hempstead, welcome back. Thanks again for being with us. Sure. Um, the numbers. And we were talking about education levels uh, and the the lower education or socioeconomic levels also, I guess, are impacting these numbers. Talk to us about um, the, the the minorities. Is this is this something? It seems like uh, it, it's really affecting white uh, communities more. Except there are some um, uh, there are some groups of people that are even more impacted by suicide than other groups. Talk about that. Well, it, it has sort of traditionally been a problem that's really associated with non-Hispanic whites who have, you know, who have had the highest rates. Native Americans is another group that, you know, really has struggled with suicide and saw, you know, saw some increases over this period as well. Hmm. What What is that attributed to? Just, I guess, the same same situations? Uh, you know, I think there there is a lot of economic duress in you know in reservations and in in places where there's um, you know large Native American populations. There you know there's problems with substance abuse and you know I think just you know maybe concentrated versions of some of the same problems that that we see um, you know elsewhere in the country. I, I think you you brought up something really interesting before the break, which I, I would love to just return to for a second if we yeah. could, which was um, you know access to treatment because. Another thing that people don't really talk about as much, but I think it's important during during the recession when there was a lot of you know economic duress and people losing jobs and stuff, a lot of people lost access to health care or even people that that may have had health insurance might not have been able to really you know utilize it as much as you know as much as they maybe needed to or or should have and so I think that while you know mental health treatment does not prevent all suicides, it's certainly you know very very important as as a, you know a response to right. people that are experiencing mental health problems and vulnerabilities. So, one of the things that happened during this period, I think, is that a lot of people that maybe would have benefited from treatment didn't didn't get it and didn't have access to it. And one of the things that we're able to measure in one of the data sets we work with is when when we have a circumstance recorded at a suicide that somebody had a mental health problem but but was not receiving treatment so we were able to kind of look at those two things as you know a kind of a you know a crude measure of access of course sometimes people that have mental health problems won't seek treatment even right. if they could have access to it but we did see that 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 indicator rose over the time period and that indicator was a lot higher for people you know with with less education so i think that that's that's something that that probably played a role. So then, you know, to be a little bit positive, right at the end of this time period, you know, approximately 20 million people gained health insurance. And I think there is a real, I mean, that's a huge number. And I think there's just a real 
new commitment to trying to improve people's access to hmm. mental health treatment. So hopefully that's something that will, you know, maybe help these rates come down. Uh, yeah, and maybe that's one of the keys is educating people on what, when they need the help, right, and, and, uh-huh. and taking advantage of it. Absolutely. I mean, I think that we've come a long way as a country, you know, especially in recent years, you know, with, you know, reducing stigma about mental health treatment and, you know, having more sort of appropriate views about care seeking and, you know, encouraging people to kind of just normalizing the idea that people, many, many people, you know, would benefit from mental health treatment. So I think that those are positive directions and and the fact that more people have access. And I think that, you know, the delivery system is struggling to, to you know, have supply meet demand. And I think there are some you know, some new things that are being developed, maybe um, some of them are virtual, you know, um, involved telecommunications, other kinds of things to try to get more help to people more quickly in larger quantities. And I think that um, that there's a real effort underway to try to, you know, reduce that access gap. So I think that's, that's kind of encouraging. And along the same lines, I think that there is progress on the substance abuse treatment front as well, where the need is great, you know, and has grown a lot. And yeah. there's the development of some more effective treatments that use medication. And I think that, you know, we're in the process now of trying to scale that up so that, you know, people that need treatment really can get it. Yeah, because a lot of a lot of substance abuse, they are just medicating other mental health issues, right? Depression and anxiety, ADHD I, even. I think that's right. And, and even if that's not Right. I mean, for every person, it might yeah. not be right. But I think that is right a lot of times. And regardless, I think once you become addicted to a substance, it creates its own risk right. factor for suicide because it causes so many problems in your life. I mean, first of all, it makes people feel depressed. It makes people feel cognitively impaired. If they can't get access to drugs, they can feel really you know, sick and despondent and miserable. People start to get into altercations with people in their family about their drug use. They might take money from relatives or, you know, just creates a whole lot of chaos in people's lives. So, I mean, regardless of why people start to use substances, I think once you get addicted to something like an opiate, it's its, its own thing and it's its a big problem. It's, um, it's also such a – mental health is such an interesting field because – you know, it's at one point it's counseling, right, or even education, and then counseling, and then it, as you progress up the spectrum, deeper, further medical intervention and institutionalization, and all of these other levels of it. But it's also it seems like sometimes at the most um, at, at the earliest stages we don't take it maybe as seriously as as we may need to, and we kind of throw a band aid at it like. Take these pills. That'll get rid of your depression. Where it's, I mean, a lot of the research shows it. It demands kind of not just medication, but it demands counseling simultaneously. And you know, the interventions need to kind of be more, you know, um, dynamic and interactive with other, you know, other services. I think that's right. I think mental health is so tricky because I think the, you know, sort of the symptoms and the outcomes of treatment are all quite subjective, you know, right. compared to other kinds of healthcare. So I think it's hard for people to recognize they have a problem. And, you know, then a lot of times people don't adhere to treatment or don't like the way the medications make them feel or have a lot of trouble getting access. And, and you're right, for many people, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a lifelong or at least multi-year kind of thing, you know, to, to make the kinds of changes that are going to make them feel better. Mm. What, um, what can we be doing with our families, with the people around us uh, to make sure that 
we're being uh, we're we're being the best help we can be. We're being we're giving them the best shot at at making it through these difficult times. Well, I mean, I think it's it's helpful to realize that it's sort of a, a population health issue, you know, so that there are, there are things that we all can do. I mean, it's you know that it's sometimes it's you know it's it's very very difficult to to help people that that have you know serious problems and don't seem to want help. But certainly, you know, encouraging people that that seem like they're um, you know not not feeling well that they're depressed that they that they're having a mental health problem encouraging people to get treatment you know that's that's obvious i think parents of adolescents you know need to know that adolescents um you know in addition to having mental health problems like anybody else are also extremely impulsive so you know a lot of times adolescent suicides are come right after you know altercations with with parents or with with other family members or you know there there's an impulsivity with younger suicide and self-harm that is not there with older people. So even though the, the actual suicide rates are younger, you know, I mean, are, are, are lower for, for adolescents than for older adults, the, um, you know, kind of the, the setup to suicidal behavior is a little bit different because adolescents are, are less mature and they, they are, you know, are, are just can be very impulsive. So I think that it's, you know, it's, it's important to remember that when you're, you know, interacting with adolescents, which can be very trying, you know, yeah. but to try to avoid like, you know, very, very inflammatory confrontations and, you know, things that might make people feel at least temporarily like they, um, you know, they don't have any other options or, you know, they, they want to hurt themselves, you know, which, um, which so often when we, you know, hear, read about the details of adolescent suicide, it's extremely impulsive and, mm. you know, probably is something that, you know, would have maybe gone away and they may never have had a thought like that again if if that moment could have been prevented. So I think there's special caution that people should take with adolescents because they are just less, you know, less mature. But then I also think, you know, for for um for another thing, you know, not to get into, you know, gun control or anything like that, but just in terms of thinking about whether people have access to lethal means, you know, if you know somebody that is, you know, that you're concerned about and you know they have a gun in their house, well, you know, that is a thing to think about if you're a family member or a friend. And I think that, um, you know, medications similar and, um, you know, those are things that, that really matter because access to lethal means, you know, does make a difference because people have a suicidal thought, um, they may not keep that thought going for too long, but if they have a very easy way to bring that thought into, um, you know, into reality, some people will will do that and they may not substitute another method. So I think that that's a very, very important thing that that family members and friends are in a unique position to help with. Mm, So true. And listen and hear what they're saying, right? I mean, if somebody threatens it, take it seriously. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and most people that commit suicide have have done something like, you know, either disclose their intent or, you know, left a note made prior attempts. I mean, there there's, you know, very often there is, you know, a, a trail of behavior that that leads leads up to this. I mean, there's, you know, there's very stereotypical things like if people start giving away their possessions and stuff like that. I mean, yeah. Those are those are clear warning signs. But even you know beyond that, I mean, many people will will say things, will kind of test out suicidal ideas and, and say things like it would be better if I just weren't here, or you know mm. things like that. And those are definitely things that that you know people people that are feeling good don't say things like that. Yeah. So if someone says that, you should not ignore it. Take it seriously. Wow, yeah. Dr. Kathy Hempstead, thank you so much, and uh, thank you for your great work there at Robert Wood Johnson Foundation as well. 
thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Great insight. Again, folks, uh, suicide. It's it's. It's on the rise and yet it's also – there's connections to everything else that's going on. Um, just the pressure that you feel day to day. It's uh, some, some struggle even more in knowing what to do with that pressure and how to handle it. Uh, also maybe even leading to drug use or drug abuse or eventually addiction. It's a tangled web, folks. We call life and yet there's signs and there's clues as uh, Dr. Catherine Hepstead just taught us. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, get through this crazy thing we call life and doing it with, you know, some peace of mind. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, it's these are people, right? People are hurting, and I think if you if you just watch the political world long enough, you see that there's a lot of angry people. Now, even Bernie Sanders and his people are getting up to, upset to the point of, you know, acting out, but. Maybe what's really happening is deep, deep down, people are financially stuck. They're upside down. Their dreams are gone. And maybe that's part of the problem um, with what's going on with the the peaking suicide rates. I also have a belief that technology's got something to do with it. Those darn smartphones. But it's it, it probably is pulling us away from interaction with each other. When we could go talk to somebody and maybe talk something out, we now just get on our phones and go Netflix it out. Is there a problem with that? Well, except, yeah, you're not solving your problem. You're just, you know, binge watching, which in and of itself is depressing. After like eight hours of it, you're thinking, man, where did my day go? Apparently, you only get satisfaction from like watching TV for two episodes, and then after that, you're then it's just it. guilt, yeah, depression. Wow, good to know. This is why you turn to your cell phone, and then you can play all the video games. This is how bad our cell phones are getting in the in a city in um, the city of Augsburg, Germany. How do we say it? Ben? Augsburg. One more time, Ben. Augsburg. Yeah, not even close. Uh, it's Augsburg. Um, ben keeps thinking because he knows German. He knows how to pronounce every city. Augsburg. Augsburg. Apparently that's right. He, no. uh, they've decided it's time to act on all of these smartphone addicts because you know people are spending so much time looking down at their phone that this city has decided to install ground-level traffic lights. Oh, come on! I know. To warn people who keep looking down at their screens – that, uh, for example, that a tram or a train is approaching. So when a train's coming, they they have these lights that um, kind of, you know, instead of just having a line like don't cross the line, a train is coming. Now they have lights that would flash on the ground. So when you're looking down at your phone, you can real you can see that you're about to die. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? It used to be that we cared so much about our lives that we'd keep our heads up, Right. I mean, you could even be bleeding, but you're going to keep your head up. Keep your head up. Now we put our head down 
And uh, all of a sudden, this, the cities and the states have to start protecting us from our own stupidity, our own inability to to protect ourselves. So red lights flash when a tram is approaching, and when normal traffic ha- is happening, then the lights turn off. The city says, we realize that normal traffic light isn't in the line of sight of many pedestrians these days, so we decided to have an additional set of lights. The more we have, the more people are likely to notice them. <sighs> so just notice, simply having cell phones now has doubled the cost of lights for every tram stop. You got to keep your head up, folks, or you're going to lose it. Last thing you need to do is lose your head going to get on the tram. Yeah, folks, let's just value our lives a little bit more. I mean, I don't want to sound like grandpa, but maybe put the phone down when you're next to a moving piece of metal that weighs many, many tons that could kill you or crush you. Hey, also, you might want to put it down when you're heading 70 miles an hour on a freeway, too. Keep your head up. I mean, I don't want to sound old-fashioned. It used to just be makeup and Big Macs that you used to worry about people being distracted by. Not anymore. Now it's the cell phone. Anyway, thanks to Augsburg, Germany, teaching the rest of us how to... uh, Make sure that these people live. I personally think evolutionarily we should just let them walk out. Can't keep your head up? Can't keep your head. It's that simple. Sounds graphic, but we're trying to shoot straight with you folks. We'll take a break. Uh, Next hour, more ideas, uh, more fun, interesting uh, guests coming up next hour as well. We will be talking with a man that had Asperger's, didn't even know it. And then it dawned on him that he had Asperger's and it changed his life because he started actually looking for emotional connection. Um, pretty, pretty interesting story. John Elder Robinson will be with us. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you get through life and uh, do, it with, do it with style. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show, hour number two of the program. Man, have we got a great show for you. John Elder Robinson will be talking to us in a few moments. Imagine you had, imagine one of your five senses just disappeared. Or Ben, even better. Imagine, Ben, that you actually picked up another, because you have three of the five. Imagine that you picked up a fourth sense. Well, my senses kind of alternate. Yeah, you have rotating (laughs) sensibility. That's so I, I, I kind of know what that's yeah. like. So this guy had an emotional awaken, awakening. He has Asperger's, and all of a sudden he realized he's been missing the point emotionally. And he's starting to see, like he's starting to realize that he's missing stuff. Interesting lessons we're going to be learning from John Elder Robinson and uh, his book, Switched on is the name of it. Um, interesting stuff, folks. I'm telling you, 
There's so much to learn. Holy cow. And maybe even just understand about one another. What if you were married to somebody that never knew it, but they have Asperger's and they just don't read emotion very well? We'll be talking about that uh, in just a few moments. Also, of course, some headlines. We've got to get to the headlines because there's so many things we want to talk about. Today is golf day, by the way, May 18th, golf day. It's the day you can celebrate golf. Ben just raised his hand. Ben, you got a question or was that no, just excitement? No, I was like pounding my fist into the air. Are you a golfer? No. Okay. Just checking. <laughs> just thought some people would be excited. Yeah. Some people are. They're called golfers. <laughs> Poor Benjamin. But you know what? It's great, Ben, because you're actually – you're with us today. That's what I love. You're You're tracking. Half the half the benefit today. The history of golf, uh, you know, it's it's an ancient it's an ancient history. It goes back to the 15th century in Scotland, and today we're going to celebrate it. Why not? But first, let's get to the headlines with Caitlin Thomas. Caitlin, what's going on in the headlines? Thanks, Matt. <laughs> um, well. For this morning's headlines, Donald Trump said in a Tuesday interview that he would be more than willing to meet and speak with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un in an effort to curtail the rogue nation's nuclear program. He said, I would speak to him. I would have no problem speaking to him, Trump said, adding that he would also, quote, put a lot of pressure on China. Elsewhere in the wide-ranging sit-down, Trump condemned Russian President Vladimir Putin's encroachment into Ukraine and said the U.S. made a bad deal in the Paris Climate Change Agreement. Under pressure from conservatives, House Republicans dropped a measure from the defense policy bill that would have required women to register for the draft. Representative Pete Sessions, chairman of the House Rules Committee, said Tuesday he is, quote, adamantly opposed to coercing America's daughters to sign up for the selective service at 18 years of age, but appreciates those who volunteer to serve the country. Representative Steny Hoder, meanwhile, said the move was a Republican effort to make sure its members were not forced to, quote, vote on equality for women, and they ought to. Melania Trump wants America to know that her husband, Donald Trump, is not Hitler. Asked by DuJour magazine what she thinks of highly publicized comparisons between her reality TV star husband and the notorious Nazi dictator, she said, We know the truth. He's not Hitler. He wants to help America. He wants to unite people. They think he, does. they think he doesn't, but he does. Even with the Muslims, it's temporary. However, she admitted, maybe he needs to say it in a softer way. Service resumed early Wednesday on a critical New York commuter rail line the morning after a massive fire broke out under Metro North tracks in East Harlem. Hundreds of commuters were left stranded Tuesday night at New York's Grand Central Station after the fire erupted around 6.45 p.m. Officials say all affected rail lines would operate on a Saturday schedule until repairs were completed on Friday. The blaze appeared to have been sparked by a tractor trailer, and the city's fire chief said, Explosions rocked the area with heat so intense it blew bolts out of steel. The cause is still under investigation. And finally, Matt... Girls just might have an edge on boys when it comes to technology and engineering, according mm-hmm. to results from the first ever national test of technology and engineering literacy made public on Tuesday. A more, among more than 20,000 eighth grade students in both public and private schools across the nation, 45% of girls scored proficient on the exam, which was administered in 2014, whereas only 42% of boys reached that mark. Wow. Overall, 43% of students scored proficient. Girls performed particularly well in the communication and collaboration portion of the test. Wow. Add a go. Add a girl. Go for it. I knew that. Remember that segment where we talked about males versus females being in charge? Yeah. And this just backs up my theory, don't you think? But this is about engineers, right? When it comes to technology and engineering. Yeah, those aren't the leaders. Yeah, sorry about that. What are you talking about? They're like the accountants of the science world. Yeah. No. 
Especially very, since very they performed well in communication and collaboration. Very and you few didn't presidents. Listen to me at yeah, all. yeah, but in the engineering realm. Yoo-hoo. Can I get back to my show? <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Matt. Very few presidents have been, you know, engineers. Just saying. It's 2016. It totally is. <laughs> it totally is. Way to go to the today's year date. Well, there you go. <laughs> Way to pull there that There you out. have it. Thanks, Caitlin. Welcome. Well done. Um, crazy, crazy uh, day, honestly, in the news or in the, the Democratic Party. There's a there's a total. Let me just tell you, if you believe that eventually the world's going to end yesterday may have been a sign of it. OK, two reasons. Bernie Sanders people are fighting and protesting almost like Donald Trump's or the people against Donald Trump. So there's a lot of excitement going on in the democratic process. But maybe even more important uh, is simply the idea that Megyn Kelly and Donald Trump are friends now. That in and of itself might be a sign of the times. So Megyn Kelly had an interview, an in-depth interview with Donald Trump. Now, if you remember, this didn't go I don't well, know if in-depth yeah, is in-depth really – because they didn't get into foreign policy and things that he would necessarily – yeah, but that's, do as president because that wasn't the scope of the interview. Yeah, no. Well, and honestly, who wants to watch that? And who really w- will Donald ever get into foreign policy? What deeply? I I read this morning, Fox is trying to maneuver Megyn Kelly into possibly being a Barbara Walters interview special type of reporter. Really, where she sits down with important people. And has these interviews. Now, Barbara Walters had Barbara Walters people or whatever they called the show. But everyone talked about how she, she would bring them on and they, she would make them cry. Really? Did she make Donald cry? I didn't no. see it. There were some awkward moments, though. Well, let's get to one of them. If you remember, uh, Donald made comments about Megyn Kelly, but also comments about women, derogatory comments like the word bimbo he remarked he used so here's megan kelly confronting him on that would be amazed at the ones i don't retweet bimbo uh well there was a retweet yeah did i say that many times Ooh. okay excuse me <laughs> what do you think with i mean not the most horrible thing you know again politically not the most <laughs> over your life megan you've been called a lot worse is that right wouldn't you say you know you've had a life that's not been that easy and it's not about me it's not it's not about me it's about no, the, the no, messaging that. yeah that was awkward he goes oh <laughs> excuse me he didn't i don't know that he said i'm sorry he didn't yeah, he, he, maybe he just doesn't use those words. Maybe "excuse me" equals "I'm sorry." Maybe I, I saw there was a lot of headlines last night saying that he apologized. I'm like, I, I don't know if he apologized. Hmm. Maybe that's as, as you're saying. Maybe that's as close as he's going to get. Uh, Megan also asked Donald Trump about being a bully. Most kids between the ages of six and sixteen have been bullied at some point in their lives. Were you ever bullied? No, I wasn't. But I have seen bullying, and bullying doesn't have to just be as a child. I mean, I know people are bullied when they're 55 years old. It can happen when you're 45. It's, it's, you know, it happens, right? But you got to get over it. Fight back, do whatever you have to do. I've been saying during this whole campaign that I'm a counterpuncher. You understand that. I'm responding. Now, I then respond times maybe 10. I don't know. I mean, I respond pretty strongly. But 
But in just about all cases, I've been responding to what they did to me. It's interesting. But when you hear him talk this way, it, it's humanizing. You know what I mean? All yeah. of a sudden you realize he's just a human. And that's why you do this interview. And he justifies it by, yeah, I might respond times 10, but I'm just responding. But then comes the question of do you want your president having kind of a hot head and reacting on, on Twitter that way? Where you just launch out things. There's another interview where he's talking about um, the picture he put out of Ted Cruz's wife. Yeah. He says he kind of regrets doing that. It was in the moment. I was – it's kind of one of those, well, you're doing this. I'll do this back. And and it's – he's just reacting to things and maybe you don't want that. Well, you probably don't accept or do you – would you rather have somebody that reacts and you kind of know what they're thinking or somebody that just quietly leans over their shoulder, talks to an aide kind of in a Putin-esque way? And then Putin-esque. hires the hit on somebody, well, which yeah. could happen. Which to me, it seems like other candidates wouldn't say it, they wouldn't tweet it, they wouldn't do it. Yeah. But they would say behind it, the scenes, crush it, that. It person. seems that Donald Trump needs to have some sort of healthy way to get out the anger, get out yeah. the 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 energy, rather than going public with it. Right. No, I agree. And th- this this honestly, this is going to help him a lot. He needs a stress ball. He, <laughs> he needs, needs to squeeze a stress, a stress ball. ball. He, um, he also addressed if he has regrets, because remember, he made a comment a few weeks ago about he doesn't like regrets. Here's his comment. But do you regret any of those comments? Uh, yeah, I guess so. But you have to go forward. You make a mistake. You go forward and you, you know, you can correct the mistake. But to look back and say, gee whiz, I wish I didn't do this or that. I don't think that's good. I don't even think in a certain way, I don't even think that's healthy. I don't know. Is it healthy? You're a doctor. No. I mean, you should regret. Regret is so that you change and you adapt. The, the deal he – this is his problem. He never, he never admits it. Mm-hmm. If he would just admit that was a mistake, I am sorry. I shouldn't call people a bimbo and then move on and then never call people bimbo again. But he doesn't – he never closes the loop. He just keeps looping, <laughs> looping. And I think if he would actually say, you know what, honestly, I'm sorry. I should not. That was me reacting and and I'm controlling it. I'm trying to control it better. I mean, I think honestly, if he would admit that, he would – and start showing that for the next six months, he'll win. He'll win. I think people don't like Hillary that much that they'll give him the benefit of the doubt, especially because he's now friends with Megyn Kelly. Are you kidding me? Well, he's cordial. Yeah. No, they're best friends. No. BFFs. Really don't think so. <laughs> Megan, by the way, asked uh, Trump what it means if he loses. I will say this. If I don't go all the way and if I don't win, I will consider it to be a total and complete waste of time, energy, and money. Wow. That's true. It's honest. If you go all that way and don't win, I don't know if you actually changed anything. Well, yeah, except I don't believe that either. His brand has been nothing but well strengthened. There's that. He still made a, quarter, or a half a billion dollars last year. This year, he will make less, mm. but next year, he'll make a billion because his name is worth $4 billion. Apparently. He was a third of that show. There were three other guests on the hour oh, or really? whatever it was. They, it was on the – it wasn't on Fox News. It was on – all the local Fox affiliates across the country. So they moved it there, and it was a primetime special. So you had Trump for about a third of the hour. I think Michael Douglas was one of the interviews. Shapiro 
O.J. Simpson's lawyer. Yeah. He was on there. Oh, really? Yeah. So she, she had several A-list type interviews as they're trying to appease her as her contract is coming up in about a year. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, you know, I don't know if I want to stay here. That is uh, – that's interesting, isn't it? Oh, I got to tell you this before we break. Um, there's a woman named Marianne Allfriend Noland. Is that right? And uh, she – Does she hyphenate? She died. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> she died. Uh, but listen to what she put in her obituary because this is like crazy. I mean it's one thing to just go die and everything. It's another thing to make this comment in your obituary. Faced with the prospect of voting for either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, Marianne Noland of Richmond chose instead to pass into eternal love of God on Sunday. Oh, yeah, I have that. She's She chose to die then, <laughs> rather than deal with any of these crazy political people. And then as this says, uh, while that was certainly one way out, a family member had added to NBC that her obituary was definitely a joke. Yeah, it better have been. Um, this story I have says one, one of the perks of dying, early, dying during an election year is using your final wishes to express your political preference, namely telling those that uh, tasked with living through November to vote, who to vote for. That's why a Pennsylvania chiropractor did back in January when he asked mourners, to, in lieu of flowers, don't vote for Trump. <laughs> in Alabama, one asked her friends and family to do the same when she passed away in April. One Virginia grandmother took the joke a step further in her obituary, published Tuesday. Um, that's the one we, did, we just yeah. talked about, how she said instead of voting for Trump or Clinton, I will pass on to the eternal love of God. She, um, she died of lung cancer. But so, you know, that's one way to get your message out there. There you go. And, you know, bad advertising for everybody, you know, who's going to love this is that candidate Johnson. Later party. Later on, I'll have another story about a group that's got together now to tell people to not vote for anyone. Wow. So instead of no Trump, it's now no one at all. Yeah, because then no one will win. And then I'll tell you, there's an organization, there's a group. Is that a pro Obama group? <laughs> they've gotten money together to, to try to push this. So we'll talk about yeah, it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's backed by Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. Who knows? Folks, uh, crazy. Stick with us. Uh, we're going to be taking on a really interesting issue of Asperger's. Um, John Elder Robison will be joining us, author of, uh, of, a, of a new book. He's written many books. But he's going to be talking about how his brain just switched on and emotional blindness changed overnight. Pretty interesting stuff. Helping you see the good in the world, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Townsend Show. You know, imagine living without one of your senses, and then one day just switches on. Suddenly you can hear for the first time or see color. Well, our next guest, John Elder Robison, knows what it feels like, but John wasn't blind or deaf before this miraculous change. Mr. Robison has Asperger's, a form of autism that left him without the ability to read emotions. And he's here to talk about how his life suddenly changed. Uh, John Elder Robison, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. 
Thanks for inviting me on with you today, yes. You bet. Thanks for being here. And you've written many books um, uh, about your your journey with, uh, with Asperger's. Talk to us about your latest book, Switched On. What do you mean, what switched in you, John? Uh, what switched on in me was the ability to uh, read emotional cues from other people. I was always able to feel emotions. Um, Autistic people are often thought as not having emotions because we don't show emotional signals a lot of the time, but we actually feel things very deeply. And and for me, the disconnect and disability was that I couldn't read cues from other people. So if someone was sad, I couldn't sense, for example, that she was sad. I couldn't offer comfort. And I was seen as callous and uncaring when, in fact, I cared very much. So you f- and that was a, a disabling thing to me. Now, was John? Is that is that with most Aspergers people that are that are uh, that have Aspergers? They they can feel the emotion. They just can't see the cues. Um, it's probably not quite as simple as that, but that is the gist of it. Okay. Uh, autism. If you've got an autism diagnosis, whether that's autism, PDD, NOS, Aspergers. That means that you've got some kind of communication impairment. You might, um, in traditional autism, have a hard time understanding spoken words or speaking words yourself. Um, With uh, Asperger's, you're more likely to have difficulty understanding the nonverbal cues that make up such a big part of interpersonal communication. Hmm. Did you... um... You say it just switched on. Your ability now to read the cues switched on. Uh, It did. Now, that was a temporary thing. It didn't switch on forever, but what what happened was the uh, experimental stimulations that I took part in Uh at uh, one of the Harvard teaching hospitals in Boston, Beth Israel, uh, they temporarily turned on the ability to see emotions in other people at a very strong and intense level. Wow. And actually, that was disabling. I was overwhelmed by the ordinary emotion of daily life. And, um, and that gradually faded away, but it left me permanently changed. Hmm. Um, just imagine, you know, if you were a colorblind person all your life, and and you got to be middle-aged, and you just got angry when people talked about beautiful blue sky or green grass, because right. you saw the evidence of your eyes that it was all gray. And and then imagine you go in a doctor's office, and they switch on color for you. And even if color fades away the next day, you're going to live the rest of your life with the knowledge that color is real, and it's going to change how you see and do everything. Mm-hmm. And that's how it is for me. And and it's overwhelming, you said. Now, this took place in a car ride. Is that is that what happened? Well, um, the stimulations took place in a uh, neuroscience clinic at Beth Israel Hospital in Boston. And what was interesting was the scientists thought that they would stimulate me for half an hour and there would be direct effects that they could measure for about 15 minutes after. So they were very anxious to stimulate me and then test me. And to do that, they put me in front of a computer monitor where I looked at faces with different expressions and pushed buttons for Mm -hmm. what they meant. Um, And I didn't feel any different doing that test. So then I sat around the hospital doing, you know, paperwork and stuff like that. And I left about two hours later. 
And it was only when I was in the car listening to music that this, like, tsunami of emotion washed over me. And, and it was totally unexpected because they had said, well, any effects are going to be long gone by the time you leave the hospital. Mm-hmm. So to be overwhelmed by it that night and then have it carry on, you know, for days after, that was a, it was remarkable, but totally unexpected. Oh, yeah. And I guess mind-blowing, overwhelming, because one of the things I read is that you've, I guess you discerned that the majority or a large percentage of our emotions aren't positive. Well, for for you to say that now, I guess I could like look back on that time and I could say what a naive fool I was to think any different. The right. newspapers are full of bad news, but I had this, I guess, kind of fantasy because I was blind to these emotional signals. I thought there must be all these beautiful, sweet, kind messages that I'm missing, and if I could receive those messages, I would be so much happier. <laughs> And and that fantasy wasn't real, unfortunately. Wow! I mean, really, it's I guess it's it's groundbreaking. It's exciting to think that such, you know, um, such therapy might help and work. But it also is for a man, you know, that's an adult who's experienced life differently. It's got to be just almost earth shattering to then have to deal with emotion constantly. You know, there have been accounts from people who were blind or deaf all their lives, and thanks to modern medical science, they acquire the ability to see or hear in middle age. And those people find what you would think was the relief of a significant disability to be overwhelming and disabling in itself. And for me, seeing emotion... It was a, a dream come true, but when it came true, it wasn't necessarily all I imagined it would be. I saw a lot of sadness, angst, fear, worry, and and I began to internalize all those things that I had been kind of protected against all my life. Hmm. Is it? Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you Asperger's is is who you are, right? It's it's one of the points you make in one of your books that. It's just it's who you are. It's not just a it's not a sickness. It's it's your personality and then all of a sudden your personality was multiplied I guess by whatever 10 and then you then taken away again. When you lost the ability to see the emotion, what did that do to you? Was that a relief? The ability to see emotion came on suddenly, truly like flipping a switch. The fading away was very gradual, and even today, my ability to um, read emotions in conversation and seeing people is markedly better Hmm. than it ever was earlier in my life. So even as it faded away, it is not entirely gone, and that was, as I say, a gradual, gentle thing. Um, One thing that I realized in doing this is that there's no free ride. People often say things like, well, 90% of our brain isn't even being used, and if only we could use it, we would be so much more productive. But in fact, studies show that we do use all our brains. And so when you make a change in me, and, and I could suddenly see emotion, it's fair to ask, what were those parts of my brain that see emotion doing before? Mm-hmm. And, and, in, and I now think that those areas of my brain might have been 
what helped me have a unique insight into machinery and mechanical things. Right. That's what made me successful as an engineer. It's not so much having Asperger's as the ability to see into machines. That was unique. Seeing into people, in a sense, just made me ordinary. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So it becomes, it becomes your gift. It becomes your advantage. Asperger's is an advantage, and you can change it and become normal. Air quotes. Well, there's there's many things about me that are still disabled. So Asperger's is not entirely an advantage. There's they call it a disability because there's stuff that's disabling. But that particular thing, seeing into machinery, and that was that has been a powerful advantage for me all my life, and I believe that's absolutely due to Asperger's. Yes. Hmm. Wonderful. And now, um, did you continue the therapy? Are you still doing that therapy? I took part in six studies. Three of the studies were aimed at measuring a parameter called brain plasticity. It's how the brain changes in response to stimulation. Mm -hmm. Those studies didn't have any effect on how I think or perceive the world. And then I took part in three studies that really changed how I see everything. And those studies were in 2008, 2009, and 2010. I haven't done any TMS uh, experiments since then. Is it um, – what, what were the findings in the study? If the you findings, know. it was really interesting. They were published in some neuroscience journals. And if you were to read what the scientists published – they, it was very dry and technical. It was, they said things like, well, we had you know, a dozen subjects, and we, we put them in front of a monitor, and we tested them recognizing faces. And then we did TMS stimulations to these areas, and we tested them again. And the autistic subjects, many of them showed noticeably better ability to recognize expressions. So they said that. We were not, a number of us were noticeably better. And they said the people who were not autistic were not affected at all by the stimulations, which I thought was interesting, that even though it made us better, it didn't make people who were not autistic super better. Yeah, right. do anything for them. But if you read what they wrote, it's like the life-changing things that happened to me weren't even part of the medical journal articles. They only described what happened in the 15 minutes after the stimulations. Yeah. What about what happened in the days and weeks and months? And that isn't even mentioned in the journal article. Oh, that's sad. Because, I mean, well, that, that, I don't know if it's sad. I mean, that's like that's how medical research is structured, yeah. I guess. But that's where the hope is, right? I mean, that's an outlier that they need to go explore, and I'm sure they are. But. You're, you're absolutely right. My experience was totally unexpected, and, and I think that it is. It's full of hope, not just yeah. for autism and Asperger's, but also it's full of hope for the power of TMS to change the mind to treat other conditions that are really formerly untreatable. Yeah. Oh, I think it's fantastic. And and even just to have the experience. I mean, if every human being, John, could have an experience that is that awakening, um, it, it's, it would probably it, – it would have incredible uh, impact, I think, on how we treat each other, how we see the world. Uh, I just think it's, it's, it's so insightful. I want to take a break. We'll come back, John, and continue this discussion. I, I really want to know um, what, what the rest of us need to learn um, about – 
just what you're experiencing, having not had the emotional, you know, gifts and then having received it and then still kind of in, in a more moderate level, how it's impacting you. Stick with us, folks. We'll continue this discussion about the book Switched On, a memoir of brain change and emotional awakening by John Elder Robinson. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Townsend Show. Can you imagine having your hearing turned on for the first time as and you're an adult and all of a sudden you can hear everything. The birds, you know, you can you can hear the moans of your children as they you tell them to go to bed. It could be overwhelming, right? To have uh, to have this one of your senses reignited. Well, our guest today, John Elder Robison. Um, has Asperger's, which is a form of autism, that left him without the ability to um, read emotions. And uh, he then went through some therapy and um, for a while had uh, had his the switch switched on. The emotional recognition switch kicked on. And in a profound way, he still has many benefits of, of the ability to still uh, sense and, and see emotion a little bit better today. But he's walking us through some of his lessons, and uh, we appreciate you, John, being here. It really is an interesting book. It's quite a journey, really. It's, you know, what I've just realized that's kind of remarkable what? is that people, after I wrote Look Me in the Eye, they remarked on the different things I'd been successful with, I, you know, being an engineer for rock and roll bands and working on some of the uh, earlier electronic games and toys, and then of course, taking up book writing and photography. But all those things are solitary activities. I hmm. did them alone. You, yeah. you do that kind of stuff alone. And if you look at what I'm known for today, today I serve on the federal government committee that makes the strategic plan for autism along with 35 other people. Wow. I teach a neurodiversity and autism at William and Mary in Virginia, again, with a bunch of students and, and fellow faculty. I, I serve on a bunch of different committees uh, advocating for autism and people with differences. All those things are group activities. Never in my life was I successful in a group activity before doing these experiments, hmm. and now that's like the main focus of my life. And I realized, isn't that kind of a remarkable change? Yeah. I mean, it really is. And it's so is that, John, your point that there's hope? I mean, there's you this with with Asperger's. It's not a death sentence. It's you also have gifts coming from it as well. Um, and it's that uh, there's there's hope that I guess with some of the therapies, but even just, I guess, with un, some understanding, you might be able to improve your conditions. I think one aspect of hope is that my experience uh, suddenly seeing emotion after not seeing it all these years showed me that maybe the grass isn't always greener, as mm. I thought it was. And that in itself is hopeful for young people with Asperger's, just that 
it helped me see my gifts more clearly. But at the same time, I recognize that there are probably quite a few people on the autism spectrum who feel just like I do. They feel disabled by a limited ability to read emotional cues in other people, and they think, what if I could make that better in myself? And I think the promise that we have a therapy under research now that can truly do that, that has the potential to be life-changing for others, just as it was life-changing for me. And finally, there's the promise of TMS to treat other conditions like epilepsy, addiction, anxiety, and and those things can be truly life-saving. And again, we're just, we're really on the cutting edge right now, right? It's just getting started. TMS is a targeted therapy where they're firing electromagnetic energy into an area of your brain that's maybe between the size of a marble and the size of a golf ball. So if you kind of hold a marble up to your head and you imagine in this area holding it up by your temple, we could impact seeing emotions and autism. And then you hold it maybe over by your left ear and you think in this area we can relieve depression because there's a 1,000 TMS centers treating depression in the United States today. And then think, how many other places could we put that on your head and what conditions might we be able to treat all the other places we can place it? We haven't even scratched the surface with the potential. Wow. And and TMS stands for what? Transcranial? It stands for transcranial magnetic stimulation. Yeah. And it's a process where they use an electrical coil, like an electromagnet in science class, and they pulse it with energy, and whenever they pulse it, it induces tiny electrical currents in your brain underneath the coil. Hmm. So it's done while you're fully awake and conscious. You don't feel uh, pain. You might feel, it feels like kind of weird, it like puts your mind in neutral, mm-hmm. but it's, it's definitely not, not a painful thing. Wow. And, um, and it's a gentle process in that it's not done under anesthesia. People sometimes compare it to ECT. Uh, ECT is a violent jolting of the brain that's done under anesthesia. Yeah, right. Millions of times gentler than that. Now, and you, it's targeted. ECT goes all through your head. Yeah. It just doesn't. Are you, you're married, right, John? I am. I actually got divorced after the TMS sessions, and then I that's remarried what, a few years later. Well, yes. what, that's what I wanted to ask you, is how did it impact your relationships? Because it opened your eyes to such a new kind of world, um, but it also opened yourself up to pain more. As much as I feel hopeful about the promise of TMS, I have to say the impact on the relationships I had going into it was sad. Hmm. My wife had been depressed most of her life. She's just a person with clinical depression. And because I'm oblivious, I guess, to that, or I was, uh, she could wake up in the morning and feel like, well, I can't go to work today. I'm really, I'm just, I'm just feeling really sad today. And I would say, okay, well, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. I'll see you later. Yeah. And I could, um, I could live with that. It was okay. We got along, and it was a, 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 it was okay. But then after TMS, suddenly I saw her depression, and it was like a suffocating mat, and I felt like I was drowning. Mm. And married life foundered as a result. 
And, and that's a really, really sad and totally unexpected result of the TMS. I, I would never have expected that. And, right. and you know what was also really sad? What? Was looking at memories where I remembered laughing with other people, mm-hmm. and suddenly with the knowledge of TMS, it's... It's so weird that I saw my memories in a different light, and I realized I was the joke. They were laughing at me. Uh, and all of a sudden, where it used to feel funny, now it was hurtful and mean. Yeah. And, and I remembered so many things from my past that I thought were okay or funny, and now they're painful, bad memories. And I can't remember a single thing from my past that turned good in comparison, only things that turned bad. Oh, wow. And, and I now see how autism provided me a tremendous protective shield. And I think about that, and I think, well, aren't I better off to realize those people were laughing at me and they weren't my true friends? And, and I guess that's true, but you know it hurts to know that. Yeah. And, and sometimes you think, Maybe I'd rather just be dumb. What was the harm in that to to not see it? I'd rather not have known. That's right. No, I mean, isn't that – it's the double-edged sword you brought up, huh? It sure is, and, and that was really, really painful. But I have to say that knowing the truth is probably always better, just yeah. that it hurts. Yeah, and it also kind of just this crazy balance that a lot of us have been thrown into where – you know, we we not only maybe can see the emotion, but we also have the ability to to manage the relationship. Um, and yet, too, the blessing of knowing that when with, with your autism, you also had the gift of understanding machinery, kind of on a genius level. That that was a great gift as well. I mean, it's it's like we all carry gifts, don't we, and curses. I think we do. Sometimes people. Um miss that, especially parents with children on the autism spectrum, Yeah, because we learn about autism when we're diagnosed because we fail at something. We don't ever learn about it because of the ways it makes us exceptional. And, and autism has disabled me in, in ways like seeing into other people, mm-hmm. but it's provided me the gifts that have made me a successful person, too. Oh, totally. Well, and John, we appreciate you sharing those gifts. That... Uh... Really, very insightful into the power of emotion and autism and Asperger's. Um, it's really a beautiful story. John Elder Robison, thank you so much. Again, if they go to the website, johnrobison.com, they can, you can get all of his books, his materials, find out how to come in and have him come in and, and counsel your organization on autism as well. John Elder Robison, great stuff. New York Times bestseller, folks. And who to thunk it, right? Turn on the emotions and... You still have memories, right? So your memories, you'll go through it with all of your new emotional insight. But how stressful, how difficult, too. Mm. Consider yourself blessed, folks, uh, for it, for just being where you are and having what you have. Because uh, there's a lot that can go wrong and could go right that could add so much to life in complexity and joy. There's the crazy paradox. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, continue the discussion. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. (laughs) 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. How crazy is that? He gets the therapy, the TMS therapy on his brain. His emotions kick in. You know, ironically, like an hour later than they were testing. So they're like, yeah, this didn't work. And then the next month or whatever, his life is ruined because he's overwhelmed with emotion. And imagine, too, having to go through all of your memories. I was reading the uh, kind of book description yeah. of, of his story, and it's that idea that you go through this treatment, and then every your life that you've built up to this point and coping mechanisms and everything that's built in, you now have to readdress it all because oh. now you can recognize emotion. Uh-huh. And then like you were saying, even with his marriage... You, you now all of a sudden there's... realize your your wife's pain yeah. and even your coldness to her pain. But as long as you have a memory, every emotion can be replayed. So isn't that, in a way, it's torture. Yeah, so he said there was kind of a, a moment he had to kind of deal with some loss there because what he was doing before had to go away now because he was recognizing the emotion and how he reacted and related to other people. Okay, okay here's I'm going to go crazy on you here. Uh-oh. So maybe this is what hell is. Whoa. So maybe when we all die you're not just going to go burn in a fire pit hmm. with the dark side. Maybe you're just going to be given a full understanding of your life and go revisit it hmm. with this new light. Like the good parts? Well, you'll, you'll, so the good parts will be sweet. Hmm. And then the bad parts will be heightened because you're like, oh, jeez, I blew that. Or will it just be the bad parts? No, I don't think – I think it will because Joy was – life is great. OK. She'll have a – But great, you'll have to have the upper downs to understand the downs. Yeah. OK. Maybe that's hmm. what happens when we're all done here. We just get all of our faculties back, and you're a fully operational spiritual being. I'm just throwing it out there. That's hey, write a book. I'm gonna write a book on that. Will you make a note of that? <laughs> write a book on that. <laughs> I figured out where hell is. It might be in our very head. Could be. What are we going to name the book? Ben. <laughs> dot dot dot. Where hell is. <laughs> wow. I don't know. I don't know. We'll, he's just, he's just, that, that's that, just my working title, right? We'll workshop it. We'll figure it out. <laughs> I'll see you there. Matt. I love Ben. Okay. What, what? In other news, <laughs> yeah. the Colorado one, it's a newspaper, yeah. reports a, 20, also a person from Colorado. A 28 year old babysitter allegedly used two children she was taking care of to rob a bank Friday. <laughs> Authorities say Rachel uh, Eisenfar, I guess, pulled up to a drive through at the Colorado East Bank and Trust. Used the vacuum tube to send the note to the teller. The note claimed there was a man in her SUV who was threatening to hurt her kids if she didn't get the money for him. This report from the AP, the bank teller, oh, wow. under the assumption that lives were in danger, gave her $500. NBC News quotes a sheriff's office statement saying the SUV was found by authorities soon after the incident. The two suspects were detained. The sheriff's office says there were never any, there's never actually a man in the SUV, and it's unclear who the second person detained was. The woman was arrested on suspicion of robbery and child abuse. The children were not harmed in the bank robbery. But she had them in the back seat. Uh, Hey, they're going to hurt the kids. Honestly. (laughs) Again, we just came off of the guy that has Asperger's and no emotion. Did she not? 
She's probably got an addiction or something. Yeah, she has other motivations probably. Ay, caramba. Good to it's, – it's good to be semi-healthy. You know what I mean? I guess that's probably the most any of us could ask for. Semi-healthy. Semi-healthy. There's a positive outlook on life. L- semi-lucid and coherent and present. That's what we think until we're all in hell and we realize how and then unhealthy we were. Apparently it's just like talking to Ben. <laughs> that's just the name of the book. Oh, okay. Ben, I'll see you somewhere. Um, good stuff. <laughs> we're learning, folks. We're learning, right? That's what this is about, figuring it out. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us next hour. More fun, more ideas to help you live longer and love stronger. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you, or bottom of the morning, depending where you're listening. Man, we got a great hour for you. This is hour number three. If you've missed any of our shows, it's very easily remedied. Here's what you do. You pull out your iPhone if you got one. Look up the podcast button. Just click on it. Type in The Matt Townsend Show. Bada boom, bada bing. You'll find our show. Download our show. Or go to, if you've got an an Android, then you go look up Tune in, for example. Or we could just post all the news sites that we use to get our news, and it's all theirs. Yeah. Just stay quiet for a minute <laughs> while I talk through this. Um, you could also go to uh, Tune In and, and download the podcast there. You could just go look up the BYU Radio app, download the app, and live stream. If you're away from your car, you can now listen to it. Anywhere, you know, where you want to live stream. Plus, get every one of our old, our other interviews. We had an interview last hour, if you missed it, holy cow, about a man who has Asperger's and his, his – they basically threw some electrotherapy shock stuff in his brain. Guess what? Turned his emotions on. Overwhelming. And um, today, by the way, we are going to even talk more about emotional management uh, Becky Bailey will be joining us, Dr. Becky Bailey, and she's going to talk about how you teach your kids to manage their emotions. Um, it's Managing Emotional emotional Mayhem is the name of her book, The Five Steps for Self-Regulation. And I personally wanted to do this, and I'm so grateful that in my studio today, right now, I have Ben and Caitlin, uh, two of our producers that most need to learn about emotional management. Um, so we are excited to get this underway so I will not take any more time, but we will get to Becky Bailey in a minute. Uh, we will also be talking to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, find out what's going to be on their show. And we will now head over to Caitlin Thomas to find out what is going on in the headlines. Caitlin. Thanks, Matt. On Tuesday, Donald Trump sent out a press release announcing he filed his personal financial disclosure form with the Federal Election Commission on Monday, his second filing since he declared he was running for president last June. He says, I filed my PFD, which I am proud to say is the largest in the history of the FEC. 
His income was reported as being in excess of $557 million. The statement continues an increase from last year, and as of this date, Mr. Trump's net worth is in, ex- in excess of $10 billion. On Wednesday, the Department of Labor will finalize a rule that increases the annual salary threshold that determines which workers qualify for overtime pay, the White House announced on Tuesday. The rule will extend overtime protections to 4.2 million more Americans and will boost wages by $10 billion over the next decade. We're strengthening our overtime pay rules to make sure millions of Americans' hard work is rewarded, President Obama said. Everybody agrees that the economy will play a big part in the 2016 presidential race, but Americans' view on economic health are complicated. A new poll from the Associated Press finds overall just 42% of respondents said the U.S. economy is in good shape, but 66% say their own households are doing well financially. Politics plays some part in perceptions. 34% of Republicans said the economy is good versus 54% of Democrats. And people with a college degree who have generally fared better after the Great Recession are more upbeat about the economy than those without a college diploma. And finally, Matt, a Texas school district says no one will face punishment after video surfaced of high school students, get this, using a cat's intestines as a jump rope during a lesson. What? Officials with the Northeast Independent School District told reports that the incident happened earlier this month during an, an anatomy class at Winston Churchill High School. The district said the teacher felt the lesson was, quote, effective for demonstrating how long and tough intestines are. She says neither the students nor teacher will be punished because there is no, quote, ill will. But she says the district will update the lesson plan. <laughs> Animal rights group PETA <laughs> told uh. the TV station the school should replace cruel and crude di- dissection methods with animal-free lessons. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Would you want to play jump rope? Hey, how come Timmy gets to jump the rope with intestines and we don't? Settle down, Tommy. (laughs) That's crazy. Well, I mean, it's kind of effective, right? I mean, it's It's a great lesson. Well, yeah, but get a jump rope. A little bit crude. (laughs) Just get a jump rope. I mean, I don't know if the cat was already dead. Is it really? I don't know. I just think about the smell. I know you always do. Yeah. You always do. It's because Ben's very aware of his own smell. Yeah. Is he? Well. I mean, is he really? I'm dying over here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, fact of the matter is, is animal rights groups are not happy. Yeah, they're not. But I'm like, I don't know. I mean, we have. What do you think? Well, I just don't think you, I don't think that's how you teach kids about intestines. Well, what would you do? I'd talk about intestines. <laughs> I wouldn't say, okay, everybody let's grab your intestine. Up. Let's get outside. <laughs> we're having a jump off. Hey, at least we're teaching them and we're keeping them active. Yeah. Isn't that true. what we want? I guess. Can you imagine the carnage on the. That's, I know. graphic. Well, thanks for bringing that to our attention. You betcha. Holy cow. Could have gone all day without hearing that story. Deal with the intestines. Happy Wednesday. Thank you, Caitlin Thomas. Well done. We, um, man, we got a lot to do. This is the hour of power. <laughs> I think that's actually a different station. Um, today we're going to be talking with Dr. Becky Bailey about managing emotional mayhem. So if you have children that just lose it every once in a while, you know, they just, they, they just have their breakdown, how do we teach our kids to manage their emotion? We can put them in timeout. We yell at them. We do all of these things. And yet um, – Emotional management is a—it's a big part of life. It's something that's not going to go away. And how many stories do we have on this show where people just never learned quite how to manage their emotion? Take away their Hot Wheels. Oh yeah, 
You don't mess with a little boy's Hot Wheels. You don't. It crushes their day, but they get yeah. the message that behavior is incorrect. And yeah. then they get their own toys back with when they demonstrate good behavior. Okay, I'm with you. And if that doesn't work, you beat them no, with no, a no. pool noodle. No, no. That, <laughs> or, that, that's recreational. That's different. <laughs> take away their cat intestine jump rope. You could do that too. That's crazy. And, and the joy yeah. of it is – by rewarding behavior, the parent doesn't have to buy something new. You just get them their old toys out of the closet. And they feel like it. And they're like, wow, I love this car. This is fantastic, Mom. Where did I get this? That might be a great parenting method that we should probably pay attention to. Thanks to my wife. We will ask the expert, Becky Bailey, in a minute if that's actually what we should do. She'll say no. It might be. It might be one of the keys, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it, it could happen. Don't. I mean, there's probably other ways. Oh, yeah. There's tons of ways. What do you do when the kid no longer cares about the Hot, the hot Wheels car? Then you move on to his brand new Green Lantern Lego spaceship that he loves. Really? Yeah, and you're like, this goes in the closet now. No! Yeah. Yeah. I feel like you've mapped this all out. You have to. Yeah. Because they become desensitized. Yeah. You, you can't lose power. You have to stay ahead of them. Hey, uh, so I, that they're always raw, right? Mm. I don't want to throw a wet blanket on anything. Here we go. But, wet blanket. Um, you remember the bison story? Yeah. That's kind of sad. The That's baby sad. bison. So we've had like three bison stories lately. There's bison are now a national animal? Yep. That's the only one I know. Uh, bison in the Back ladies. To the whole circle The domesticated of life. bison in oh, the yes. house. Oh, yes. You had bullet. The domestic. He, she, bullet. Sold, she sold the bison. And then there was baby bison in Yellowstone Park and a dad and a son. They were afraid that the bison was cold, cold or lost lonely, or hurt. Yeah. had been, you know, kicked away from the herd. So they picked up the bison, put it in the back of their... Apparently the bison jumped in and they feel it's because... No, it didn't. <laughs> it did not. I do not believe that. No, they're, they're, they're saying lying. that the bison didn't need to really... They didn't have to, like, grab the bison and do it. It just... They, they, they invited... They, you know, you kind of push and it just jump, it it jumped just in. It just right in the back Because seat. people have walked up to this bison and interacted with it quite a bit. Well, and so they drop it off at the ranger station. Yep. And the rangers spent... Like 24 hours looking for the herd to reintroduce the bison, baby bison. We're not the the other one's name was Bullet. Yes, this one we're calling BB. Yeah, because he was a baby. BB the bison. <sighs> well, they couldn't find the herd, so they couldn't reintroduce him. And because they're not there to, you know, to keep captive these animals. Yeah, they had to put it to sleep. Yep. That ended abruptly. Ruined everything. Um, the, uh, the other issue at hand would be likely the herd wouldn't take the bison back. Because it had been all man, air quote, handled. Manhandled. So because of that, he's he's now – yeah something's wrong with him. They would have left him to die anyways. So. And we'll post the article, but really don't go near the animals. <laughs> Just look at them. Keep even, driving. Even if they're shaking in – like they're cold. They're okay. Just call a ranger. It's like my wife's always concerned when you see a horse out in the field and it's raining and it's cold and they're they're standing in the wind. She goes, oh, look at that poor horse. And I go, he's fine. There's, he's a horse. He's okay. All you have to do is go look up Yellowstone uh, tour videos and you'll see pictures of people petting wild bison. Or bears. Or, here, come here, bear. Yeah. I mean, honestly. 
Come Again, on, people. Circle of life. We hate to bring it to you, but that's just – we're just bringing you the truth. Sad. You were talking about emotional management before. Yeah. What about political management? Impossible. Impossible to manage politics? No. Yeah, because none of them have self-control. So uh, Team Romney has been uh, pushing the never Trump agenda. Okay, yeah. He's he's adamant that – That has failed miserably as he is now the – well, not officially, but he's the candidate. He's the Republican candidate for president. Yeah. So never Trump essentially failed. But those people have apparently they're now in the in the in the course of accepting the fact that they can't stop him from becoming the party's nominee. So they have a new plan and it doesn't involve any shenanigans at the Republican National Convention. Really? So shenanigans. That's a good word to it's use. It's a great word. I like that word. Fox News reports on Tuesday citing highly placed Republican sources. So, you know, Paul Ryan. Um, the plan hatched by a group of donors and political insiders, Robert ex- Roberts explains, is to launch a none-of-the-above campaign in a handful of states where neither Trump nor Clinton did well in primaries. Never-Trump Republicans and Bernie Sanders supporters would be given a third option to vote for in each of those states. The strategy is to deny both Trump and Clinton the 270 electoral votes needed to win the presidency thus throwing the election to the GOP-controlled House of Representatives. It has happened before in 1825, he notes, and not everyone thinks the plan is crazy, though it certainly puts the Electoral College at existential huh. risk. So the idea is toss <sighs> it to the House, and then they pick the, the, the president. They each get a vote. So yeah, what do you think? Is that good? No? Do you want the House uh, of Representatives picking the president? No. Okay. <laughs> I mean, why would they start doing something now? <laughs> Why now? That wouldn't be chaos at all. Holy cow. We could go an entire year without a president. How would that be? I wonder. We'd be like all those countries we read about and go, psh. Those countries don't know what they're doing. And that's where Joe Biden will be like, ugh. I could have won this. Could have been me. It could have been me. So none of the above versus never Trump. Interesting. None of the above. It's giving an option, though. I would like there to be a box. I would too. Because Why can't you just choose? I don't like any of these candidates. I think if, if this becomes the option, then it makes the other two players play up and play mm-hmm. well. So Donald Trump, show us you could be presidential. So you could manage mm-hmm. politics in a way. Try to show us. Come on. I dare you. Or we're just going to check the box. D, none of the above. B, well, yeah. J, none of the above. Probably J, because you see that list. You're like, <laughs> yeah, all be, these people are running? Who are going these people? To be a very long list there. Yeah, interesting. It's crazy. Somebody's got to manage something. Hmm. Anyway, uh, by the way, just a little update. Uh, not an update, but if, if you are working on the USA Today editorial board, before you put out a map about um, the, the uh, marijuana laws in Colorado, please make sure you know where Colorado is. They put out a map from uh, Wyoming showing where all the drug was being trafficked from Wyoming all over the country because people want Colorado pot, apparently. However, uh, Wyoming's not Colorado, so on your map, you'd want to show it as Colorado. Just saying. I don't want to get down on you, but as a person that lives in the West, we're people too. This is the show where we give you the information you need. Mm-hmm. Helping the USA Today, one story at a time. 
We're going to take a break, folks. When we come back, Becky Bailey will be joining us, and she's going to be talking about her book, Managing Emotional Mayhem. When your kids throw the fit, what are you supposed to do? Teaching your kids to regulate their emotions through your response to their breakdowns. Let's focus on you. Parenting 101. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, when it comes right down to it, uh, we we need to parent our children, right? And they're going to throw fits. They're going to have their issues when they don't get what they want. But how how do you handle it? And uh, and how do you teach your kids a healthy way to manage their emotions? It's one thing to just, I mean, I guess, put them in timeout, but. Maybe the best model of emotional management is going to be the parent and joining us today um, to help us kind of understand this emotional roller coaster that our kids are going through and how we can best coach them through it is Dr. Becky Bailey, who's the author of the book Emotional uh, Managing Emotional Mayhem, The Five Steps for Self-Regulation. Dr. Becky Bailey, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Oh, thank you, Matt. Wonderful to be here. Great to have you. This, uh, I mean, kids, you know, they throw fits, right? But so do parents. Oh, my gosh. I, uh, I, I was just up with my grandchildren, and I think I threw about four more fits than they did. <laughs> uh, I was throwing fits at them throwing fits. Yeah. It was, it was just a fit circus up there. Um, and, and they're I like, Grandma, that- control yourself. Yes. I love it. Didn't you write a book? Didn't you write a book? Yep. (laughs) Mom, Grandma, get this. You wrote the book on this. How do we we not react to their reactivity? And that's that's the most profound question you will ask. And most – the answer or the problem is most of us don't live a, a, a regulated life. We have these old beliefs that have been handed down, handed down, handed down, handed down, handed down from generation to generation where people had didn't have the ability to regulate their own emotions and we we're just passing it on. So let me give you an example. Yeah. Okay. So here's how we kind of sabotage our life. Usually, I'm going to call this the five se- steps to self-sabotaging yourself. <laughs> okay, great. All right. So the first thing is we tend to blame people for our emotions. You know, look what you made me do, this traffic guy. This guy can't even drive a car. I mean, these kids are driving me nuts. Look how you made your mother feel. You're driving your grandmother nuts. So we tend to blame our emotions on others, and we teach children to do that. Mm. You know, we teach children by saying, look how you made your sister feel, which puts your one child in charge of the other's inner state. So how do you grow up if someone else is driving you nuts, if someone else is making you angry, if someone else is making you sad? How do you regulate your own sadness and anger? Well, you don't. So the next step we do is we tend to blame it on others, and then we demand that the others change. Yes. You know, if you know what's good for you, you best get in bed now. <laughs> or even in the office, you know, the boss is just an idiot. I don't know, you know, my coworkers, they're killing me. They're driving me nuts. I can't stand to go to work. Here's what they need to do, 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 do. So we act it out, demand the world go our way, and then when the world doesn't go our way, we get these sensations of, oh, my gosh, I mean, I can't tolerate this anymore. So we start medicating ourselves. Yeah. 
and we do this. I mean, this is a huge addiction. I mean, whether it's – I'm a, personally a workaholic. I don't know about you. Matt, Not me. Nope. No, Not no me. Good. I'm a sitaholic. I just sit and, all day. And we have sugarholics, but we have 23.5 million Americans addicted to drug and alcohol. And if you just add sugar and caffeine to that, yeah. I think it takes us all down. So then what happens is we medicate those through some kind of addiction. It could be playing golf. Then we bury – those feelings that we had into some kind of story. You know, I can't believe what's happening to America. Look what's going on. Look at the politicians, you know. And then we stay stuck in a problem because we, it starts with blaming others. So we go around this whole cycle. I blame. I demand you change. I medicate my sensations with, you know, a couple martinis. I buried in a story because you're an idiot. And then I stay stuck in the problem and I complain through oh, my life. That is... That is – that's insanity 101 right there. Right, and and I don't know about you, but I tend to catch myself in that loop like little hamster yeah, totally. almost every day. Yeah, so, so that – I guess part of it is seeing that you're in the pattern, right? And so if I'm blaming my kids, demanding their change, they don't. I go medicate myself, get busy, ignore them, which just causes more mayhem. Right. The problem may not be my kids at all. Right, and then you bear it in a story like I'm not a good parent. Right, you know I don't know what I'm doing. I'm ruining my kids, or are these my kids, kids aren't good kids. And yeah, these kids are like true. they're my in-laws. Right. Yeah, we, we they're blame not some. true. Those stories are just made-up stories because we couldn't deal with the sensations in our body that we call feelings, mm. and then we start believing the story instead of actually letting the feelings come to our awareness and going, okay. Boy, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. I mean, both these kids are going off the deep end at the same time. And let me just take a breath. Let me just calm down. I can do this as opposed to they need to stop. We try to control children to manage our upset. And that's the loop I got in with my grandkids. You know, if they would just calm down, then I could get calm. Mm-hmm. But they went off at the same time. And it was like, oh, my gosh, I'm overwhelmed. I can't. You, you, one of you have to stop <laughs> right now. And, and I didn't take that pause. And and say, they're not making me crazy, but they're certainly triggering something inside me, yeah. this, this sensation, this feeling. So I think that's our biggest problem, that we as adults need to kind of step up our game, for lack of a better word. And here's an interesting thing, Matt. They yeah. did research, uh, a lot of people, a lot of universities, et cetera, et cetera. And they found out that how adults treat adults has more impact on how children learn to manage their feelings than how we treat the child. Hmm. So they're just watching us. They're watching us in our own house. And we got, what, almost 60% of our marriages, if you do get married, you know, ends in divorce. Uh, they're watching us not handle these things so well. Hmm. Um, so they're just following our model. Debates. I yeah. mean, they're just looking at a mess right now. That's interesting. So really, it's 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 how we're living our lives as parents in front of our children, and how we manage our own emotional ups and downs that is that's teaching the children. Exactly. I mean, just take. I'll give you a simple story. Let's say you're riding in the car. Uh, you're riding in the car, and you've got a bunch of kids in the back, you know, and some person cuts you off in traffic. You know, what's your what's your immediate response? You know, it usually is judgment, criticism. Uh, we stupid drivers, I don't know this, and they shouldn't get a drive. You know, we start yeah. blaming and judging and, you know, a little mouth. Um, so then you get to the grocery store, 
all right? You get to the grocery store, and you, you're telling your kids now, you know, when we go to that little aisle now, you're not going to get any candy, you know. So I brought you an orange. I brought you whatever. You're just a perfect parent. You've yeah. got everything. You've explained it to them before. You've rehearsed what's going to happen. And you get right there to check out, and they're going, I want a candy. And then you say, no, you know, we talked about this. And then from their point of view, you just cut them off in traffic. Right. So they're going to go, I hate you, and you're, you know, <laughs> right. the same thing you just did yep. 20 minutes ago. But uh, that's what they're watching. And then, we, so, and then we're surprised. Like, what? Where did you learn this? Right. You're watching too much TV in that right. child care center or that school, public school, and I'm going to have to homeschool you now. <laughs> oh, boy, that'll be great. Let's, <laughs> let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Becky Bailey about her book, Managing Emotional Mayhem, The Five Steps for Self-Regulation. We'll take a break, come back, continue the, the journey and the discussion, figure out what we can be doing then as parents to manage the regulation and do, do a better job. Stick with us, uh, learning all we can about parenting in the uh, moment of emotional breakdown. Interesting stuff. Stick with us. show you ever have your kids break down and then you realize well i've been breaking down all morning too what is the deal the contagion effect of our emotional uh craziness and mayhem well who better to walk us through it than dr becky bailey author of the book managing emotional mayhem the five steps for self-regulation and she's here today to teach us uh, what are some things we can be doing as a parent to make sure we're teaching self-regulation. Uh, you know, by the way, a skill that these children will be able to use forever. Um, and what if we could just instill some of the tools early on? Dr. Becky Bailey, thanks for waiting and being back with us. Oh, um, certainly my pleasure. So let's get to some solutions. Yeah, what do we do? Okay, so first let's change our cycle. Okay, so the first, instead of blaming others for our upset, we're going to go, oh, no, I'm triggered. Mm. You know, they didn't cause me to feel anger, but they stepped on a landmine that I was carrying inside me, that's for sure. So they triggered my upset. So once I say it's mine, then I'm going to take, I'm going to calm. So step two is calm. I'm going to take a deep breath and really slow it down. (sighs) Really slow it down. Then I'm going to feel, instead of going on to the story that's in my head, I can't believe these kids are doing this. I can't believe this. I never should have got married. Instead of the story in your head. You're going to pull out a feeling, okay, I'm feeling what, what, and sometimes we don't even know what we're feeling, so we're going to take a guess at it. I'm feeling frustrated. I'm feeling anxious. Then once we can pull that feeling out, instead of going with the story that's rambling in our head, which causes us thoughts that get us more upset, we're going to pull that feeling out, and then we're going to go, okay, I'm feeling angry. Okay, so I wanted, so what's the message of anger? What's the message of anxious? See, anxious says you just need more information. Anger says you need to change. So then you're going to choose something. You're going to choose a better perspective. Maybe that car that just cut me off in traffic, you know, is really late for work or they've got a sick child in the back seat or who knows. We don't know why they're so late and why they cut us off. They were just probably singing to a song just like we do and cut people off. So we give them the benefit of doubt, and then we can solve our problems. So we go, instead of I blame, I'm triggered. Instead of I 
act out or try to get the world to go my way, I calm down. Instead of uh, medicating, I try to find what I'm feeling. And instead of burying it in a story, I choose a better story that's going to calm me down. And instead of staying stuck in the problem, we solve it. So Hmm. that's kind of the the cycle we're going to go. But that doesn't give us the day-to-day. What am I going to do in this moment? Yeah. But I mean, I guess I guess the key is if if I could just do one of those steps, it would change a lot. If I could just simply not blame them, but recognize I'm triggered and own it in front of them, then oh my gosh, yeah, that changes a lot. That changes. I mean, the discussion from there on out. That changes the whole ball game. You're going to tell children that no, I didn't make you mad because you can't spend the night at your friend's house, but I did trigger your anger. And what do we do in our family when our anger is triggered? First thing we do is we all take a breath. That's what our family does. You've seen me do it in the car. You've seen me do it with your dad. You've seen me do it, you know. Hmm. You've seen me do it. So if we can do that first thing, the world changes. That's great. The world changes because we're losing the war on drugs because we don't know what we're feeling and we're trying to medicate. We're, And if you don't learn how to own your own upset, you never can learn empathy So, again, we're going to hit our friends or, in this case, bomb our neighbors. So this is a huge, huge, huge shift. Hmm. And and something like breathing. It's just breathing, Becky. But it's, it's just breathing. But what a what a seriously powerful tool. I think I think eighty percent of our anxieties could be eliminated with better breathing. And um, I think I read that somewhere, and I thought, holy cow! If we could just teach our kids to just take a breath. Right, and the only way we're going to do it is if we take ours. Right, model it. And and then we're going to respond to children differently. So this is a really key, too, because usually if you listen to people, you don't hear a whole lot of feeling words in a house. Right. You know, you'll hear, what did I just tell you, or this isn't that big of a deal, there's no need to cry. You know, I told you we'd go to McDonald's later. You know, we're talking about stuff, and all you have to do is, I call it the D. N A D describe their body or their face. Your body's telling me or your face is telling me. N name the feeling. Your face is telling me you seem angry. And then A acknowledge what they wanted in the highest possible um, view. So you seem angry. You were hoping you wanted to go to McDonald's right now. It's so hard. Breathe with me. Hmm. You can handle this. I mean, we don't do that. I mean, that sounds so simple. So we're telling them what the face looks like so they can see it on other people and learn empathy. We're telling them the name of it, which is called anger, anxious, disappointed. And we're telling them what that wanted you to do. Oh, you seem frustrated. You wanted the uh, puzzle to go right into the hole. You forgot to turn it around and see which way it would fit. I mean, but we're naming it and then telling what does that feeling say to us? See, I grew up knowing that sad equals go to the refrigerator and eat. (laughs) I didn't know that sad equals go get comfort from those that love you. You know, I grew up meaning anxious meant work harder instead of get more information. So our equations of what these messages are embedded in these feelings got confused with us because we were told what to feel. You should be ashamed of yourself. Yeah, you, look what you've look what you've made me do. So we're doing it instead of saying, "Oh, you seem," and I didn't say you are angry. I said you seem angry. You wanted, and I'm telling you, if anyone listening to this show can do these three things: take a pause and breathe for yourself, and then when you see your child upset, 
in whatever it is, you might go, you seem disappointed, you were hoping, and then figure out what they were hoping for. You seem angry, you wanted, then put that in and then tell them at the end, breathe with me, you can handle this. That's great. Because then it's all on them. You're just saying it's this is something fixable. This is not because the emotion makes us feel like it's real and it's like and it's essential and it's critical and it's fight or flight right now. It's survival. And yet in reality, you're just teaching them just kind of breathe through it, pause through it. Let's think through it. Recognize the emotion. Describe the feeling. Acknowledge it. Let's just kind of name it and tame it and let it go so that we don't carry it around for 30 years. Or 40 years, and then we're scared to be angry because we think we're going to, you know, become a terrorist in a bank or something. That's right. You know, because we're so afraid of our own feelings. But no one labeled them from us. And this isn't because our parents didn't know what they're doing. It's just we didn't think they were that important. Right. And now we know different. So it's not like – and the only reason I – my kids push my buttons as my I push my parents' buttons, you know, and those buttons are just wounds from our own childhood. We didn't know what to do. Right. This exactly, and this and is been handed learning. Down for, you know, ten thousand years, so it's not like we need to blame anybody. Right. We just need to get in the game. Yeah, and 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 have hope that a little learning can go a really long way. It does. It goes a tremendous long way. And again, we tend to say, "You seem angry," and we stop. Mm-hmm. So. You know, if, if you've got a problem, the, the difference between – to go from a problem to a solution, you have to go across this bridge called feelings. Yeah. Now, women tend to get up on top of that bridge and invite their friends, get a bottle of wine, <laughs> you know, and talk about it. You know, well, in 1985, you know, she said this. You know, so they stay on top of the bridge, don't get off the other side. Men, they don't even get on the bridge. They mm-hmm. go – you know, if the wife might come home and say, you know, I had a hard day. And he goes, well, get a new job. Get in line. So, yeah. So – we, all we need to do is go, you seem frustrated, you wanted. You seem sad, you were hoping. So my friend is leaving instead of going, well, it's okay, and you know, you can text her. Just go, you seem sad. Hmm. You were hoping she'd be here forever and stay right next door. But we can handle this. Breathe. Breathe. You can do this. And then you add, you know what? I bet we can actually text her or have an a online chat. Yeah. And solve it before right. you go across the bridge. Get across the bridge and then, then offer some it. solutions. Yeah. Dr. Becky Bailey, great stuff. Appreciate it. Um, thanks for teaching us. Again, the book is Managing Emotional Mayhem, The Five Steps for Self-Regulation. And you can find out more about Becky's work uh, at the website ConsciousDiscipline.com. ConsciousDiscipline.com. Thanks, Becky. Appreciate it. Oh, Matt, thank you so much for all you do. You bet. You too. Keep up the great work and keep teaching. I hope we're all learning, folks. We've got to learn this stuff. Really, one of the principles she taught is a great start, right? But listen to this again. Go download the podcast. Listen to it over and over and practice it. Right there, we got more tools in a 15, 20-minute interview from Becky Bailey than, than you normally get at any time. So stick with us. Interesting stuff. Speaking of tools, we'll be visiting our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. <laughs> Oh, they're going to hate that segue. Uh, Great, guys. Uh, Find out what's going on on their show at the top of the hour. Stick with us. The most fun 10 minutes you'll ever have is coming up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. That right there, my favorite song now. Sound of Silence, not Simon Garfunkel, but instead... Disturbed. Disturbed. Hey, and speaking of disturbed, let's shoot it down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's going on on their show today. Hello, gentlemen. Hi, Matthew. That's disturbed? (laughs) Do you like that song or what? Well, I like it better. I like that version better than I like the uh, Simon and Garfunkel version. This is, I think this, this has something to do with Transformers. You know, Disturbed, if I, I, I hope I'm getting this right, I think Disturbed also did a remake of uh, Land of Confusion from Genesis. Wow. I gonna, think, I think. That is affirmative, according to our producer. Yeah, I, I mean, I have it on my, on my, uh, my, my iPod, but... Uh, <laughs> you but still have remember. an iPod, dude? That's not an iPod, my iPhone is what I meant. <laughs> I'm sorry. You mean your ghetto blaster? You I still have it on, have it on, it on your nano. ghetto. Uh, <laughs> I've got it on my ghetto blaster on my shoulder. Jason's got a huge stereo on his shoulder right now. (laughs) That's why you got to be ripped, man. Jason's got some muscle because he's got to lift that that ghetto blaster. Uh, Oh, that is good. That's good. I was just I misspoke. No, you did, but that's okay. So um, (laughs) that'll go down in history, right there. That's history. Hey, um, you guys, what's up? I've missed you. I wasn't here yesterday. Yeah, that's true. What the heck were you doing, man? I was doing a speech mm-hmm. to a bunch, 450 mental health professionals. Did oh, you change well, lives? Well, aren't you just mm-hmm. super important? But you know what? I talked about you guys. <laughs> now, I have a very interesting case yeah. study I'm working we, on we, right now with yeah. two super weird guys. <laughs> we used it as a case study, and that's where we introduced the ghetto blaster story. That's how this whole thing started. <laughs> Tons of fun. Hey, guys, uh, what happened with the Warriors? Uh, apparently they're a human at home. Man, that is isn't. That is going to be the most exciting series right there. I told you it would be better than the Spurs. Totally. It's going to be better than anything else the rest of the year. You think it'll be better than the Cavaliers and the Raptors? Yawn. Yes. Yawner. Do you think the Cavaliers – could beat either of these teams, really? Yes. The way they're playing right now? Yeah. Absolutely. They're 9-0 and in the postseason. I know, it's like but they're in the East. It's almost like people have forgotten LeBron James is still in the league. You know oh, what I mean? Who? and they have Kevin Love and Kyrie oh, yeah. Irving. I mean, they've got the team. Hello. He, hey, finally, he finally has assembled a cast yes. of stars hey, to win the NBA Hey, I, I always fall into the category of when my team – Either is either doesn't make the playoffs or is eliminated from the playoffs. I immediately then root for the other league to win because I don't want anybody in my league. <laughs> yeah, right. To win, so I mean, yeah. I, I'm already I've already determined I'm I'm rooting for the Cavaliers in the finals, regardless of who they face. Wow, that's I mean, some people would say that's petty. Oh, I'm very petty. <laughs> now, I, I fully accept that. Jason's a Cardinals fan. We can expect nothing less. <laughs> oh boy, we're offending he's, everybody he's today. Used- He's used to winning all the time. That's right. Yeah, you know all these teams that start winning, you know, winning one season and think they've done it for like fifty years. Come on now, come on now. Flash in the pan. Hey, <laughs> I got a, I got a test. Looking right, right at you, Cubs fans. <laughs> <laughs> I got a test for you guys. Okay. Well, I, I want you to name the most, the fittest cities. Okay, so these are the people that spend the most money for parks. The ones that uh, have the best mass transit, that walk more, uh, that are healthier. Name the healthiest cities. Phoenix. 
Eh. Mm, I am going to say. What do you think number one would be? You would never believe it. I don't know. (laughs) Is it like Pittsburgh or something? Negative. What is is it? It is number. Let's start with 10. We'll we'll walk you down. San Diego. Okay. I mean, come on. I would have thought they were higher. Yeah. Number nine, Hartford, Connecticut. No idea. Insurance capital of the world, I think. Number eight, Salt Lake City, Utah. Okay. I see. I figured Salt Lake City would be in the top 10 somewhere. Yeah. Clean, walkable. Uh, Number seven, Boston, Mass. 02134. That surprises me. Send it to Zoom. Uh, six, San Francisco, California. Tons of walking. Tons yeah. of walking. Southern California, not so much. Nobody walks anywhere in Southern California. Weird. Number five, <laughs> Seattle, Washington. Number four, Portland, Oregon. Portland. Now Jerem is involved in this. But how do they have an opportunity to walk? It's constantly raining. Yeah, but they have umbrellas. It's just a new thing. Okay. <laughs> Denver, Colorado, number three. Okay, that makes sense. Number two, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh huh. Number one, I don't believe this. The District of Columbia, DC. Stop it, DC. Stop it. I know. Is that because you can get places faster by walking because the Probably. traffic is so bad? Well, and because Obama's always got a log jam with his <laughs> motorcade. Well, I think that Michelle Obama and her big health kick may have something to do with That's enabling it. that statistic. I, I think you're exactly right. She's pulling <laughs> hey, the weight. Hey, Barry, can you put Washington, D.C. <laughs> number one? We really – Sure, honey. <laughs> whatever you need. <laughs> we'll do it for you in your last year. Anyway, um, so just know. If you want to move, that's where you got to go. Sorry. D.C. D.C. I will be flying into the D.C. airport at some point this summer. Why? Are you going to lobby Congress? No. No. Running for office? I'm going to watch my favorite baseball team play. Oh. Not, not the Nationals. I was going to say, you don't want to fall, fly into Baltimore? The Orioles. It's only an hour away. Cheaper flight? Cheaper flight. That's what I say. That's, that's, you got to go, <laughs> go that direction. The <laughs> Orioles are your favorite team, huh? Absolutely. Those are great birds, too. Cal Ripken Jr. Oh. How do you not love it's the that? Iron Man. Dude. You got to love that guy. I thought you were the Iron Man, Jason. Uh, well, I, I, I not, I'm not to Cal Ripken standards. Didn't his mom get kidnapped twice? Man. She's a tough woman. Twice. I think she got kidnapped twice. Good grief. You'd think after getting kidnapped once, you'd tighten up your game. Like, I'm not making this up, right? It happened twice. Hang Did on it? a second. He's looking Googling it up. it right I, now. As I think that was like the big story. Oh, by the way, I thought the reason you were called Iron Man, uh, Jason, is because you have such a really strong pleat in your pants when you iron them. <laughs> when, no. Uh, I, I, I'll be honest with you. I don't even remember the last time I ironed. Really? No. That's no. sad. Well, I'm sure your wife's kind of my, my wife. Occasion, if I need something ironed, she will iron it for me. She's very nice about stuff like that. Other than that, it's just kind of you shake it out. You just dry it. You, and buy, then... you buy the wrinkle-free stuff. Uh-huh, sure. Which, by the way, doesn't work. No, that's a it's false advertising. Exactly. I hate it. Yes, Calrickin's mother was was attacked and kidnapped twice. See, wow! I knew I wasn't making that up. Again, uh, by the way, a fact that nobody needs to know except. <laughs> Jason remembers it. But I, know it. I was prob- I probably heard that on a radio broadcast with my ghetto blaster. Oh, for sure. Well, and when that when the speakers are so close to your ears, <laughs> how could you not hear it? Yes. Hey, you guys, you're still doing your show, right? Of course we are. What uh, are you guys talking ghetto blasters? Are you talking Cal, <laughs> Cal Ripken's mom? What are you talking about? Um. Well, as much as I am inclined to appease your ghetto blaster topic. <laughs> Um, You're not going to do it. We're not going to do that okay. today. I know. It's hard. It's a love-hate edition of BYU Sports Nation today. Excellent. With that in mind, 
Okay, we are asking for the teams not named Utah that BYU fans love to hate. The Ooh. Most. Should we ask? Should we give Matt the first chance to answer this question? The teams not named Utah, not named Utah that a BYU fan loves to hate. Oh, okay, so who has destroyed? Well, how oh, there's Michigan. <laughs> okay, Michigan's there. They're one of the most hated teams Ex- nationwide. Anyway, um. But who has just – are we talking football? Basketball, Basketball or football. Oh, oh, oh. Any sport you want, as a matter of fact. Oh, man. What's another basketball? Who beat – oh, uh, Gonzaga. Okay, Gonzaga makes okay. your list. Michigan and Gonzaga. There you go. That's probably all I need to give you. Those are the two. <laughs> okay. That's one and two, right? I mean, come on. Okay, that's cool. That's a great show right there. Yes. Love and hate. Anything else? Uh, Mike Littlewood, BYU baseball mm-hmm. coach, is back on as the Cougars approach – Arguably the most important WCC series in BYU baseball history. Wow. And we are not overselling that. <laughs> <laughs> it also happens to be on BYU TV. Man, that's lucky. And BYU radio. I'd sell that harder, boys. Carrie <laughs> <laughs> Roberts of BYU Women's Golf, uh, pre-NCAA championship. She demanded to be on the show because she wants some more karma, given what happened last time she came on the show, and they had a dramatic finish on the 18th hole. Wow. Got to the NCAA championships. That's right. Have her have her use Jason's ghetto blaster. Okay. <laughs> Talk <laughs> about the, karma. And a love hate edition of Would You Rather. Oh, cool. Okay. So that's one of my favorite things. Included. Okay. I don't want to give them away. They're just so good. Yes, like, these are really good. So it's only four minutes away. They can go wait. Just wait four minutes, and then you'll, you'll get into that kind Jam-packed of stuff. Jam packed edition, okay. man. Well, guys, I'll let you go. Go get waxed up, ready to go. You got it, brother. Knock them dead. Thanks. Thanks for playing. I like it when they come over and play. <sighs> you got to watch the show, guys. BYU Sports Nation. It's in three and a half minutes. Come on. Hey, uh, really quickly, you know, we always like to um, do what we can on the show to help you, right? Just so you know, after 125 years, Cracker Jack, you've heard of Cracker Jack, right? That, that caramely, hard caramel popcorn in a box. They're changing their game. No longer. I know. Are you, you're not going to find a toy in the bottom anymore. You're a monster. Tell me about it. Now you're going to have a sticker that contains a digital code, and those codes will lead customers to baseball, baseball-inspired games that they can play on their phones. I know. So you can't just pull out a tattoo and then put a tattoo on your lick your lick your tattoo and then rub it on your arm like you used to be able to do as a kid. Now you can just go waste hours and hours playing a baseball game on your phone. Thanks, Cracker Jacks. We appreciate you. As you know, too, we always like to end with a hero story. Today's hero is a driver uh, of a train who rescued a toddler from a train track moments before the train thundered past it at six hundred or 60 miles an hour. Listen to this. The distraught boy... Three was left sobbing on the tracks after trying to race after a train when he accidentally uh, left the platform. But amazingly, Martin McManus, who said he didn't think twice when he leapt from his train cab, managed to save the youngster before another train passed at 60 miles an hour. Mr. McManus slammed on the emergency brake and potentially put his own life in danger to try to rescue the boy from the tracks in Edinburgh, uh, England. Martin said he spotted the boy running in the opposite direction by the side of Edinburgh-bound uh, track. The former Royal Navy aircraft engineer said, I saw the wee lad running along the track crying, so I, su- I stopped my train and made sure he was safe. I went out and picked him up and brought him back in. 
He was looking for his mummy and was just asking for his mummy uh, if his mummy was on the train. The parents boarded the train without their son and made a mad dash back to the station when they realized he was missing. Three off-duty police officers were on the same train and they managed to reunite the boy with his parents an hour later. So there you have it. Martin McManus, you're the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. Again, doing what you got to do is what it takes to be a hero. And sometimes what you got to do is just be a mom or a dad. Sometimes you got to go to work. Sometimes you got to pay the bills and just do the hard stuff. That's what makes it work. So you're all heroes to me. We'll be back tomorrow. More ideas, more tools to help you live longer and love stronger. Check us out on iTunes and tune in or look us up on the BYU Radio app. Until tomorrow, folks, watch after each other and make it a great one. We'll talk again tomorrow.